Hey, Aaron, guess what? What's that, Derek? The boys are back in town. Boys are back in town. Yay. Yeah, it's just you and me, like, for the first time in five episodes, maybe? Yeah, it's been a minute. We had Meryl, then your mom, and then Lamplu last episode. Uh, but yeah, welcome everyone. We are Watch If You Dare, horror movie podcast hosted by myself, The Coward, and my co-host, the movie Monster Boy, Aaron, in which we discuss movies and dig into the fears and phobias and whether or not other horror newbies out there can stand these movies and then just also gush about them if you are already into horror movies. So since it's just me and you, God, this is weird not having a guest to introduce. Um, I guess, how are you doing, but uh you know uh same as the last couple weeks just dealing with you know life as it is right now and i have less anxiety around the situation at hand and just more anxiety around the amount of idiots that are like out there not doing the right thing and just making the situation worse so yay hooray yeah wear your masks i guess is the lesson of that so yeah with that let's get right into it um we're going to go into our recommendations other horror that we have consumed since we last recorded that we can share with each other and with you, our listeners. Uh, maybe there's something out there that we talk about that you find interesting and can take as a recommendation. So going into that, uh, what have you been getting into lately, Aaron? So the first thing I want to mention, if you listen to our previous episode with our college buddy, Zach Lamplu, he has a feature film in the Chattanooga Film Fest, which just happened. Um, obviously, with the situation being what it is in the world right now, that film festival was canceled physically, but Microsoft partnered with them to stream all the movies online. We had this conversation off air, but it was worked out really well because that was going to be one of my recommendations as well, but we'll kind of share this one. But Chattanooga's film festival, they handled it really well with it being kind of a temporary streaming service for like that weekend and yeah. everything was on demand, but then there were also panels that happened at certain times that you could tune in live yeah they did it really well i was impressed yeah and honestly even once things get back to normal i really hope that film festivals will do this going forward doing a live stream is not that difficult in this day and age and i really really would like to have that as an option i could definitely like see myself taking a day off work to live stream like tiff or something like that you know like that would be a blast well and they could do it at the same time like they could still have the festival live with everyone but then also offer the live stream because I don't think it would cost them that much more money to have that and they'd probably make a lot more money on the back end with having people just pay like a $10 for a day or $30 for the weekend which is what Chattanooga did and it seems like it worked out great. Yeah I know both you and I did that where you know we paid 10 bucks to have like an entire day that we could just nonstop stream anything that was going to be programmed at the festival so they had shorts they had features both of us went ahead and did it for the day specifically so that we could watch our buddy Lamplu's movie um, which his movie The Vice Guide to Bigfoot ended up being really fucking funny. It was good. Yeah, I, I was very very impressed with it. I'd seen clips and bits and pieces of it that he had shown us over the last you know year or two but seeing like how big it gets by the end was really really enjoyable and you know that's one of the things I love about found footage where it does start really simple really scaled down and then by the end it does just kind of go full bananas which his movie does it's like there, there are horror elements in it but it's not scary at all it's, 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 it's hilarious yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it is a comedy movie uh, maybe a little bit of a dark comedy by the end but it's still a comedy movie but something too that you and I were talking about was something that we both like 
liked about it was that it allowed time for the characters to just have like those moments like it took its time with some scenes like uh, specifically that scene where they're in the tent and it's at night and they're hearing noises outside like that scene there there was even a pause where like they're quiet and just listening for like a good minute or two and not many other movies would do that even found footage movies like take that time to be like no this is what it would be like in that actual situation yeah i also enjoyed like a lot of the movie is skewering vice specifically like that whole style of editing and their production for their videos but even just youtube culture videos he fucking nails that shit the cryptid commander was fucking fantastic yeah part of it is like he has actually worked on shows like that before and done that kind of editing but just really really dialing in on like what the obnoxious look is of so many of those shows and just a lot of where the focus is on those kinds of shows where you want to see one thing out of them but the show is really only caring about like giving you another thing all of that was really hilarious the performances were all pretty solid across the board he got a lot of good kind of smaller actors from the Atlanta area and some of his friends lined up for that and especially people like Brian who you know he'd done like a lot of stand-up improv stuff with and then a lot of their short films for their comedy channel you know it really shows like their timing and their chops for that kind of filmmaking so that movie was great totally enjoyable hopefully you know they get it up on some kind of streaming relatively soon so that more people can see it well and on that note this was one of my recommendations was his movie specifically because unfortunately i only had the time to sit down and watch his movie so that was going to be a recommendation so i'm glad we kind of shared that one but something that i did want to touch on and i know i am dating our episode yet again but as of today bloody disgusting their feature editorial from either today or yesterday was five genre films to put on your radar from the chattanooga film festival recap and on there is the vice guide to bigfoot so again congratulations to zach he's one of the five that bloody disgusting is picked but these other four shorts that they picked i was curious to see if you watch any of them yeah so scare package like you mentioned that was one of the features it's an anthology coming to shutter like mid-june so probably by the time that this episode that you're listening to right now is out it will be up but scare package was pretty fucking hilarious it was an anthology so it's different short movies essentially kind of all woven into this larger movie different directors different groups of actors the whole kind of wraparound is built around a genre heavy vhs rental store and so you're seeing these clips from all of these you know fake movies like the night he came back part four the final whatever right it's just these kind of made-up movies that they're doing (laughs) that's pretty creative it was very very fun the special effects in it are pretty solid for a smaller put together movie like this lots of very distinct voices and stories that are being told a couple of fun surprising cameos by the end of it overall i really enjoyed it a lot The other feature that I watched is not horror-related at all, and my wife and I were mostly just very perplexed by it. I think it was like an interesting piece of filmmaking from an experimental standpoint, but I still just don't know what to make of it. That was The Wanting Mayor, uh, which is produced by Shane Carruth, who did Primer. That's another one on this list from Bloody Disgusting. Yeah, the whole shtick of that one is it was basically all filmed in like a warehouse. It's basically just real people and then everything else is CGI around them. You know, so it was interesting from an experiment standpoint. I don't know 
what to make of it narratively. As far as shorts go, we did watch a bunch of shorts, and I think my favorites were The Haunted Swordsman, which is a fucking puppet movie. It's literally these like really, really high quality marionette, not marionettes, I don't, they're, they're puppets. I, I don't know really how else to explain it, but it's a samurai who is going to avenge the death of his master and he is looking for this demon that killed him but he's going to like the top of this mountain to find some like black monk and he's got the severed head zombie thing that's voiced by james hong this sounds fucking awesome (laughs) it's pretty amazing like think samurai jack if samurai jack was dark epic puppets that's kind of what it was it was very impressive it was very visual exciting to watch the art style just from the screenshots i'm seeing it kind of looks like uh geiger giger or whatever his name is like his uh his kind of style of artwork a little bit yeah that one was done by a guy who has an insane career in special effects like looking him up on imdb afterward this guy has worked on so much big stuff over the years just generically doing like all manner of special effects and then his personal short films like this one are all kind of centered around puppets so that was a very solid one to look at we watched conspiracy cruise which had henry zabrowski from the last podcast on the left and your pretty face is going to hell he is kind of this actor turned guru conspiracy guy who does conferences on a cruise now so it was just kind of him like having a breakdown around like wait is any of the stuff that i'm talking about real what am i doing with my life and it's a lot of just henry zabrowski <laughs> in his underwear in a cruise cabin. So it's just take Henry Sobrowski as he is already and Basically. put him in a cruise cabin. <laughs> um, so that one was fun. Death Walks on Nitrate was another good one. Um, it had a very 60s mod feel. Very colorful, very psychedelic. Photographer girl, like, snaps some pictures in a park of this like old lady and turns out she's like some kind of psychedelic witch. Best Friends Forever was a group of teenage girls that you know were all kind of telling this legend ghost story of like another girl who was picked and bullied on and everything else and it's kind of this group of mean girls that get their comeuppance. Live Forever was a fun song and it was all these people being killed in ways that are kind of iconic to a certain type of movie. So there's definitely like the woman in the slasher movie who's like running away from the killer and she gets killed with a machete in the head and so it's just her laying on the ground covered in blood with a machete in her head but then she's singing this like I didn't think that today when I went into the woods that I would end up dead like that kind of song and then it goes to the next person and it's like you know alien and something like breaks out of their chest while they're like singing and so it's all these people like by the end like Brady Bunch style singing on the screen together this one song but they're all being like murdered in these iconic kind of ways so that one was fun we watched rebecca mckendry's new short separation which was about a couple getting a divorce and kind of how there is still a weird connection tether but she kind of takes it to like a body horror degree which was fun and then this one's not horror related but it cracked me the fuck up was his and herzog (laughs) it was a couple doing regular couple stuff and having their like arguments 
arguments and like little emotional things that they're having to work through but the wife only speaks in like Werner Herzog quotes so they clearly just took audio of Herzog from all these other projects over the years and then she's just lip syncing it like drunk history style so the husband will just be like you know I don't I just don't understand why like we can't get past this you know this emotional roadblock is just whatever and then she'll just be like because death is actually coming for all of us and it's inevitable and you can't stop it like it's just <laughs> that kind of bullshit so that one was fucking hilarious um that's all i had time to watch for the day that we had rented so i i kind of wish that we had um maybe done monday as well so that we could have watched a little bit more but main thing was we we watched lampley's movie and that was kind of the, yeah. the main goal of it and to round out this bloody disgusting uh, editorial beyond the three that we already mentioned including lampley's film the other two on here are homewrecker and the beach house so check yeah. those out too i specifically kind of wish we had done monday because we heard a lot of buzz on twitter about the beach house and then jumbo was another one that people were talking about a lot jumbo was a woman who falls in love with a tilt-a-whirl machine at a fair yeah like kind of in that same way that like people are like yeah i love the eiffel tower it just makes me so horny and you know like people licking the eiffel tower like that kind of bullshit okay I'll, I'll look for it later but uh did you were you able to catch any of the panels as well like uh shockwaves or anything like that i did watch the shockwaves live panel which it was just kind of a regular episode of theirs they're all streaming from their homes so that was fun to like see all of them doing an episode instead of just hearing their voices and I caught like the end of the panel with Ice-T and Ernest Dickerson. Um, and I kind of wish that I'd like been able to catch the entirety of that panel. But overall, yeah, like there, there were a lot of cool bits and pieces all happening at the same time. And I wish I'd had a little bit more time with it, honestly. But yeah, I hope more festivals start doing this in the future just as like a supplement. Like obviously, if you are a filmmaker and you want to get in front of people or if you're press, like the best thing is still always just to actually go to these things in person but for people who just want to participate and consume the media and get exposed to new movies and new voices done this seems like a slam dunk no-brainer that why haven't they been doing that this whole time so i definitely hope that it continues beyond just this one instance where things are kind of up in the air society-wise right now yeah cool um did you have any of the recommendations outside the chattanooga film festival um not a recommendation per se but um just a conversation that you and I have kind of had over the last couple of days. You know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been getting together with my wife's family down the road just to kind of watch movies and like cook on Sundays and just kind of hang out. You know, we're all kind of quarantining and doing all the stuff that we need to do normally. So just three or four of us getting together is not that big of a deal. But the last two weeks specifically, we watched Silence of the Lambs and then we watched Mulholland Drive. Weirdly enough, um, that was my mother laws pick <laughs> that's so crazy to me <laughs> yeah so she really enjoyed Mulholland Drive thankfully and I, I'm glad that you know they at least indulge my like film love and they're willing to take some risks on watching some weird shit with me but one thing that you and I had talked about you know you watched Singing in the Rain with your wife recently and just kind of you got a kick more out of watching her watch it and yeah, watching her absolutely. enjoy the movie and just kind of how movies can transport you and take you out of like whatever situation you're currently in that's definitely how i enjoyed you know watching sons of the lambs and mulholland drive which you know i've watched both of those movies 
countless times. So just being able to like watch my sister-in-law who has never seen Silence of the Lambs the first time it gets to like the dick tuck scene and her just being like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> or Jodie Foster finding the head in the jar or, yeah. you know, the face peeling and like all that kind of stuff. Like just her, you know, through most of the movie, not necessarily being engaged and just kind of chit-chatting and talking and like dicking around. But then like in those moments, just zoning in entirely and watching those and being transfixed by them. And same thing in Mulholland Drive, everybody generally being confused about what's going on. But then like, wait, fucking Billy Ray Cyrus is in this movie? What the fuck is this all of a sudden? <laughs> right? So just, you know, watching the movie through the lens of watching other people watching is something that I've kind of enjoyed doing, especially when it's movies that are kind of batshit. Yeah. But yeah, that just, you know, these times where you can definitely, like, share something with people that you're close to and just kind of enjoy them together in maybe a little bit more intimate manner than you normally would just because we're all so, like, close right now is definitely something that, like, like, enjoy it while it lasts, I guess. You know, as much as we're all ready for life to be back to normal, these kinds of moments are definitely ones that we won't necessarily get ever again, probably. And another weird peek into my brain, and I certainly did not share this with Savannah because she was having a delightful time watching it, and I was not going to do anything to ruin that moment. But the whole time, and I know I texted you about this after we watched it, the whole time we were watching uh, Singing in the Rain, and we also have a yearly tradition where we watch White Christmas every Christmas Eve and just kind of with both those movies every time we watch them all I can think about is like yeah these are all so carefree and so again just delightful and kind hearted movies the whole time I'm thinking about all these movies were built on tragedy tears and lies of like 1950s (laughs) Hollywood when you really peel back the layers and look at it you're like oh shit Carrie Fisher's mom was like 18 years old in this movie and these two guys that are uh, the leads with her, one of them being romantic, are like in their late 30s, 40s. And the one guy who's also the director was known to be like a tyrant on set. And like, you know, there's so many broken dreams and sexual assault behind the scenes. <laughs> like, yeah, so Hollywood was a terrible place back in the day. Not that it's I mean, not a terrible place yeah, now, but it's always been a terrible yeah. place, but probably especially like around that time. I got to imagine that even like in the production of a lot of these carefree movies that there was some dark shit going on. Yeah, Bing Crosby like just beating his wife with a fucking <laughs> sock full of oranges. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they made a point, because I know I talked to you about this, they made a point singing in the rain where like the guy gets his break by being a stunt double. Yeah. With no training. <laughs> with no training and with no safety regulations. Like, they make that a comedic bit in the movie of, like, when he's talking about how, like, he was raised and went to the finest acting schools and it's all bullshit and they show what actually happened in flashbacks. It's like him being like, hey, do you know how to fly a plane? No, but I'll learn how to. And he yeah. fucking flies a crop duster, like, into a building for, like, a stunt in a movie. And it's like, no, that shit was probably actually happening in Hollywood. People fucking dying just because they were like, yeah, I got to get my break in Hollywood. Yeah, I'll lie that I know how to fucking do stunts. Yeah, and and nowadays, we're still, still not even at a point where like, you know, studios can be held responsible for the deaths of people during productions due to like negligence and that kind of thing. Like, that's not something new, but you still hear stories all the time of stunt people like tragically dying because there was neglect or oversight or whatever, and like, even now, studios still just aren't really fully held accountable 
accountable for any of that. Even in TV shows, because I know Ruby Rose just left Batwoman, but she almost broke her neck or something and had to get surgery during the production of the first season. And then I think some other accident happened with a stunt double who was either like injured or killed. I, I, I haven't read into it yet, but I know that part of the reason why Ruby Rose left the show is because of the injury. So yeah, shit's happening still all the time. Yeah. But yeah, before we dig into the movie, I did have just one recommendation that's outside of the Chattanooga Film Festival. And oh boy, Aaron, I've been waiting for a week to share this one with you. Okay. Our boys at another dirty room. <sighs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so they are back putting out new episodes for us in quarantine on YouTube. Like I had mentioned several episodes ago at the end of their Niagara Falls series, they said that they had another Dirty Room New Orleans coming out. Uh, at the time of this recording, there are, there's not one, but two episodes of another Dirty Room in New Orleans. And oh man, I thought shit got horrid in season one, two, and in Niagara Falls. No, 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 no. Welcome to New Orleans. In the first episode, this is the only description I'll give you. Bedbug Booger go from mm. there oh <laughs> and then somehow <laughs> somehow there's an even worse place they go to in the second episode. In, I think it's in the first episode. One of them straight up is just like, I fucking hate the city. I don't want to be here. Let's leave now. This sucks. I never want to come back to New Orleans. But yeah, bed bugs, piss everywhere. I mean, these are these are two of uh. like the worst rooms they've been in. I am not going to say which hotels they went to on our show. You can easily look it up on, on YouTube though and see which hotels they, they went to but there was one of them that I definitely recognized and I know I've went by a couple times <laughs> let's just leave it at that but yeah again this is like horror that gets you like this is worse than any horror movie to you in existence because it is like this is real this is, real. This is uh. like you go into a hotel everything seems relatively normal you lay down for the night what's that feeling I'm getting on my leg something's crawling there oh shit bed bucks like, uh, but after watching gross. these two episodes even I like when I went to bed and I even changed the sheets on our bed a couple days later uh, I was doing like the bed bug check where you like look at the flap underneath the mattress just to see if there's any uh, flacking and yeah they uh, they found quite a bit of flacking in these episodes so yeah if you want to make your skin crawl and forever ruin the idea of staying in hotels for the rest of your life go check out another dude room especially their new orleans series it's been delightfully gross Ugh, so far just get the fuck out of here with that. and you could tell that aaron wants us to move on from this recommendation because he's not fucking offering any other kind of explanation or discussion on this yeah, just that, that will always be so much worse than anything that we talk about on this show. We could be talking about the worst fucking movies. We could be talking about Irreversible. We could be talking about a Serbian film. We could be talking about Martyrs. <sighs> fucking nasty hotel rooms will always be worse. Always be worse. Ugh, God damn it. All right, so... <laughs> <laughs> on that note... So, because this is an audio format, you are not seeing how much Aaron is, like, skin crawling on my video right now. Anyway, so yeah, this week we've got got a great great movie to discuss but before we get to that quick message from us about our friends at nightmare threads 
What's up fellow spoopy people? Are you shopping for horror movie merch to match the fear in your heart? Do you want to show your love and fandom for horror or are you just looking for the perfect gift for that special mutant in your life? If so, check out Nightmare Threads, your one-stop shop for all things horror made for fans by fans. NightmareThreads.com offers clothing, apparel, and merch for numerous horror movies, TV shows, and other macabre pop culture. Nightmare Threads also has original horror content, articles, news, and more. So you can support us by supporting them. Check out our show's Twitter and Facebook pages for our unique referral link or use coupon code WATCHIFYOUDARE, all one word, no spaces, at checkout to save 10%. So just go to NightmareThreads.com and again, use our referral link or the code WATCHIFYOUDARE to save 10%. Watch horror, love horror, support horror. Shop Sally! All right, let's talk about our movie for this week, which is The Wailing, aka Goksung. Excellent, excellent movie. <laughs> Might I add that The Wailing is such a good name for a horror movie. Oh, yeah. Especially a more supernatural related horror movie. Is South Korea just on another fucking level of filmmaking? They are in the middle of a pretty big boom. Every country kind of goes through those periods of ebb and flow with their cinema culture. And right now, Korea is in the middle of that. And I think with Parasite this past year, it's only going to kind of take off further. You know, you hear about these big movements in cinema. You know, there's the original German Expressionism era where they were, like, running the show and then you had French New Wave and then you had, like, the new German cinema and you had, like, classic Japanese cinema and then you had that period in the 70s where, like, American cinema was just fucking popping. This is definitely South Korea's time for sure. This is, like, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining levels of slow build dread and creepiness. A plus. Like, alright, just kind of right off the bat, the Wailing demands your time, um, and that's not a bad thing, but it is two and a half hours, you know, subtitled. It demands your attention. You have to demands pay your attention. attention to what's happening and, like, really look at what's going on. Very detail-oriented. It's still a straightforward plot. Like, by the end of the movie, I realized everything that was going on, but it keeps you in the dark for so long, and then r- those payoffs right at the end of the reveals are full of dread, full of horror, and are so goddamn worth it. Again, I just ask, like, Korea is on a whole nother level when it comes to thrillers even, um, but specifically thrillers and horror because we have Parasite, we have this, and then earlier, I mean, not even that long ago, we did Train to Busan, which was one of the best zombie movies I've ever watched in my entire life. And we'll return to Train to Busan because by the end of this, because there was one or two points I wanted to make in comparison to that. But what is the background of this director and the stars in this movie? Uh, So the director, 
director is Nahong Jin. He's only done like three features, and this is his most recent. You know, this movie came out four years ago at this point, came out in 2016. The only other movie of his that I've seen is The Yellow Sea, which was also pretty fucking excellent. Think about like the movie Collateral, but even more insane, essentially. <laughs> it was really solid. The next thing this guy makes, period, I'm watching it. You know, like he sold me on The Wailing to begin with. You know, some of the stars in this, Kwok Duan, who is kind of the lead of this movie, he's been in a handful of features in the last 20 years as well. The only thing that I've seen him in was The Man from Nowhere from 2010. The main standout star, who's like really the person to pay attention to, is Jun Kunimura, who we have discussed before on our audition episode. He is a Japanese actor who has been in stuff like, I mentioned Audition, Ichi the Killer, Kill Bill, Why Don't You Play in Hell, that fucking wild Unforgiven remake that I want to watch that has like Ken Watanabe in it. Unforgiven, like the Clint Eastwood Western. It's like a remake of that. I still need to try to figure out how I can watch it. He was in an adaptation of Tomei, which is a Junji Ito story. He was in Outrage and Black Reigns. I mean, he's been in, you know, Japanese movies forever. And I knew I recognized him because I was about to ask you too, A, have we seen this guy before? He was in Audition. And he was was in Audition, but I've also seen him in a lot of stuff outside of Audition. And then if it wasn't someone I necessarily already knew about, I was going to ask you like did they hire a japanese actor to play the japanese part in this korean feature so that's that's pretty cool yeah and this is his first korean movie that he was in as well so he's done movies fucking all over the world um, but this was the first korean film that he had been in and then everybody else for the most part huang jun min who plays the shaman he was in a bittersweet life which was really solid that was directed by kim ji woon who did i saw the devil and then Chun Woo Hee, who played the woman in white kind of character, she was in Bong Joon Ho's Mother, one of his earlier movies that I still have not watched yet. I picked up some iTunes bundle that had Bong Joon Ho's early movies in it, and I've been kind of slowly watching through those, but I haven't gotten to Mother yet. And then the little girl Kim Hwan Hee is mostly doing like teen kind of stuff over in Korea right now. So, you know, the the people in this movie besides Jun Kunimura, they have all been in stuff, but not necessarily stuff that was huge in terms of crossover. So, you know, these are all people that I would like to see more of, certainly. And that's, again, one thing going back to our episodes for uh, Train to Busan. I, uh, I like seeing so much of the cross-pollination that happens in Korean cinema with directors and actors and people just kind of all work together over time just because that industry is kind of small and self-contained so i definitely look forward to seeing some of these people again in the future yeah but this movie is a really really good example of how well korean movies balance tone and just the way that this movie goes back and forth with really solid creeping dread slow burn kind of horror to like literally fucking slapstick humor where people are like tripping and slipping all over the floor like Scooby-Doo style. The way that it like balances those things back and forth and like sometimes on a fucking dime is so goddamn good. Yeah, because there's one scene specifically and I'll, I'll bring it up when we reach it, but there's one scene where it is tense and horrific but then it turns into fucking Scooby-Doo antics like yeah. you were saying like within the same fucking scene and it's meant to be like one of the scarier parts I guess of the movie and I'll do my little spiel here. 
I don't know. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, I think if you're really just only worried about horror, you could probably get through this movie. It definitely got under my skin, not while I was watching it. Yeah, there are light jump scares, but the jump scares aren't too, too bad. It's really more the visuals that are more terrifying than anything else. But as far as Creeping Dread, it's like one of the best movies I think we've done with that. I mean, it's just dripping in that. And I told Mansfield, like, I had a reaction to this movie at first that wasn't positive feelings. Like, I watched it and I was like, this was a great movie. This was phenomenal. One of the best movies ever watched. But the feelings it left me with were very negative. Like, the dread of the movie kind of carried over into my own mood. And not many movies have affected my mood like that. And when it does affect my mood like that, whether it's for the negative or the positive that's when i realized i'm watch i've watched something special yeah so this is a special movie like but this is what horror is meant to be in my mind like this is the horror that i'm looking for this is the horror that sits with me that makes me think about it for a while it's not the shock value horror it's not the jump scares screaming ghost in your face or it's this kind of horror i'm glad too because this was a movie that it is long it is lots of slow burn kind of creeping dread horror which that is not a lot of people's bags. So I, I'm very happy that you enjoyed it. And I'm very happy that this yeah. kind of hits all your buttons. So if that is not the type of horror that you can appreciate or you can even stand, because I understand it. Like this is a two and a half hour, maybe longer movie, all in subtitles and it takes its time with a lot of scenes. And if the horror, like if you can't stand having dread over <laughs> like over your head for that long, I get it. But if that sounds like something that, that's up your alley or you think you can handle, I would recommend this movie even for beginners this isn't a dip your toes into the genre this is jumping into the deep end but if it's really just like jump scares that get you like me then this is a good one to watch but again i don't know for me at least it stuck with me i'm still thinking about it i would recommend this movie period if you are a fan of movies if you want to watch a movie that is extremely well written well acted well edited well shot just everything about this movie is like peak of filmmaking kind of perfection from a technical level on every level this is definitely a movie worth watching whether or not you're even a fan of horror movies which i'm assuming if you're listening to our show you are but if you are just a fan of movies this is worth watching even if it's not necessarily your brand of heart just because this is expert filmmaking there is an argument to be made for this being like top 100 of all time it's that good yeah i absolutely i mean this is easily one of the best foreign horror movies not just in the last couple of years but period and just for it to like come out of nowhere so suddenly you know this is one that i think more people are going to discover over time it did not necessarily get a ton of buzz outside of festival talk when it got to the states originally and it has been on and off of streaming since it came out basically this is one that like i guarantee you give this movie another like five six years and it's going to be talked about in the same way that we talk about things like audition and just a lot of these other like big foreign horror movies yeah but yeah that's kind of all i have to say it creeped under my skin and it's still there um i'll explain at the end of this like once we've run through the movie why i felt the dread after watching it and it stuck with me and even kind of put me in a dark mood for a little while i'll explain that but once again i have to 
state that it putting me kind of in a darker mood was not a knock against the movie whatsoever. If anything, that means that this movie is that damn good because movies 95% of the time do nothing for me except like entertain me in that moment. Like a truly good movie stuck with you sticks with me and this one stuck with me. Yeah. This is also like I mentioned, you know, from every technical level, this is kind of a masterpiece. The editing in this movie is incredible. There are two major sequences in this movie where there is cross cutting between three different scenes and the way that that is put together and the way that everything is broken up and how that story unfolds and how things are revealed to you is pretty fucking masterful. They need to show that in film school for sure. Oh yeah. And this movie, just from a intrigue standpoint, is an interesting mashup of Korean folk religion, Nepalese shamanism, and even, like, Christian Catholicism. This is a very interesting supernatural movie that looks at possession, demonology... All of these kinds of things, but through a very interesting prism. You know, I like that it's not so cut and dry around like these are the rules. No, there are no real rules per se. There are only rules that are true to like this situation and these characters in this moment. But I like that nobody has the right answer in terms of like how to solve this problem and how to square it at the end of the day. Yeah, there's there's no like library or expert scene of like, let me lay it out for you what you're dealing with. Here's what we need to do. Well, there's also no clean cut real resolution at the end of the day either like some of the bigger questions that we'll kind of get into aren't completely spoon-fed to you and it's stuff that like you as a viewer have to decide on your own like how you feel about them and that's one of the things that i do enjoy about this especially is just like you said it sticks with you it's something that makes you think about it afterward you talk about it afterward and that's always a sign of a good movie is it keeps you discussing it well past the the movie being done so all that said you know any other final thoughts before we kind of start talking uh the horror we're dealing with here runs a gambit of stuff but on the surface level it's like you had mentioned earlier aaron uh demon possession kind of supernatural a little bit even of like kind of some zombie stuff in here although it is not zombie related at all in terms of like them being trappings of zombie stuff trappings of zombie stuff but then on a deeper level there's quite a bit of parental horror yet again we return to parental horror yeah. And uh, I feel like there's something to be said here. I didn't really dig into it enough to kind of form my own, my thoughts on this aspect of it. But I feel like there's something to be said about kind of rural communities or culture shock between outsiders and I don't know, just villages like this that are even here in the in the United States that are almost secluded to the point where like if something like this were happening, they could still get away with it even in this day and age. And I'll leave it at that because I don't want to say any more before we dig into the spoilers what about you aaron am i missing anything here no and you know we're being kind of vague now because i feel like this is definitely a movie that if you are intrigued if if you're not kind of sold by us gushing about it 
definitely like take the time go watch it come back um and we can kind of discuss some of the themes that you're going to encounter going forward you know but if honestly like if you just don't care whatever cool we'll we'll discuss it but i think we're both being purposely vague because there's a lot of stuff that we don't want to just really go deep into until we like really get to that point where we're discussing it so yeah i'll I'll quit running in circles now so again this movie is from south korea it takes place in the more rural areas of South Korea, which you don't normally see in a lot of these movies. I think it's in uh, um, which is kind of more of a, I want to say it's in towards the like southern tip of South Korea, okay. at least for this movie's sake. It's in like the countryside and the mountains and, and there's forest everywhere. Yeah, this is very rural yeah. compared to what you typically see of South Korea now, um, especially for what you typically see in South Korean movies that tend to be very like urban in kind of what their environments are you know i think this movie and memories of murder are kind of the two rural set korean movies that really changed my perspective on like what the rest of the country kind of looks like i mean it's it's like doing a crime thriller horror movie that's set in like arkansas yeah you know or mississippi or kansas or wherever like it's not a major u.s city it's not new york it's not la it's not chicago it's not miami you know and for this movie's sake a smaller town in one of those areas yeah again something like crazy happening could easily sort of even still happen without national attention or even like attention from the rest of the state so the movie follows police sergeant Junggu. and i wanted to make a point right up top about the character himself if john McLean is the cop we need right now now, but maybe not necessarily <laughs> the one we deserve. Jonggu is the cop that we deserve. <laughs> He's the cop we deserve. And like, it's nothing against him because this movie, there really are no heroes. There really are no everymen. These are just people. And he is definitely the cop we deserve in this situation because there are a lot of things that he does right, but there are quite a lot of things he does wrong in this movie. Yeah. He is schlubby, chubby, lazy, bad at his job. People are constantly haranguing him for like showing up late to work and just standing around not doing the job which we definitely see a lot of that pretty right off the bat where he is just not good at his job <laughs> he is not the best parent he is not the best husband he is just kind of a fuck up all around well and I took it as that if he wanted to be good he could be because when shit starts really going down and hitting close to home he does kind of connect a couple dots and does a decent job of following certain threads to an extent. I say to an extent in very heavy quotations because he doesn't go far enough, I feel like, in many instances. But the couple things he does discover on his own and put together, it's impressive. But again, like if he just applied himself yeah. and really paid attention, he could be like John, well, not maybe not John McClane, but like very a, a very good police officer or detective even. Yeah. So the movie starts, we see Julie. Kuramura as kind of the Japanese man. He is fishing, um, which that circles back around. We'll get to that later. But we see Junggu and he's woken up like really early on a rainy morning and called to a crime scene. And he gets there and what he finds is this man has brutally murdered another man and his wife. And the guy who committed the murder is like catatonic. His eyes are rolled back in his head. He's like covered in boils and sores. It's fucking 
horrifying yeah, too. He like looks they, like a zombie, basically. He's in the backdrop of all this chaos, all this rain. Yeah, just all this rain, screaming in every direction. Chaos of like police lights and everything. Yeah, neighbors are screaming. Like other family are screaming at him. Like screaming, "Why? Why would you do this?" Police are trying to hold people back. Then in the background is just this horrific, brutal murder scene. All within like Korean countryside. There's fields everywhere, and then the first time the camera like zooms over the guy who committed the murder it's horrifying because like he like you said he is covered in boils he's completely bloodied from head to toe but then the whites of his eyes are like showing like he's already possessed yeah and it is haunting imagery something else that i noticed too is at one point doesn't jungu kind of stop and look at like something that's hanging on the wall near his house it's like an herb of some kind maybe ginseng or something that's w- wilted away yeah so at this murder scene what they conclude is that the guy who committed the murder he murdered the husband of this family in a different location and drug him to their house again because the husband's body is literally wrapped up in a burlap sack so they go to check out the home of the murderer and when they get there the house is like completely disgusting first of all like there's just trash everywhere and garbage and junk and then there's literally a fucking nest in the corner like there is just a fucking nest of trash and garbage and like thorn vines and everything that this guy has been sleeping in but Junggu when they get to the killer's house notices there is like a small bundle of herbs nailed to one of the support pillars at the front of the house but they're like withered and kind of shriveled up so he kind of like stores that away in his head and that also comes back later again this is a visual movie you have to pay attention to it you can't be watching your phone or whatever because there are these little details that you're just gonna miss otherwise because they don't linger on them necessarily. Yeah. So sometime later, Junggu is back at the station and he's told this story by one of his deputies that they had heard from like the town gossip. I love the way this is cut. Yeah. It's one of the major scares in the movie. So like from this murder scene, which is a fucking crazy way to start this movie because the whole scene is horrific. You're immediately like in the wilderness and this guy is... Uh, he's hiking, and, and, yeah. Yeah, he's hiking and he, like, shot a deer and he, like, tries to pick up the deer and host it over his shoulder and, like, trips and falls and... I don't think he was hunting. I think he just finds this deer. Yeah, figures, maybe that like, was Yeah, it. let me just go ahead and carry this deer out because, like, it's good meat. Why not? Yeah, I, I only thought he was hunting because he did that, but I guess you're right. He just found a deer, like, a dead deer that's intact. Who knows? Maybe it died of diseases, but you know what? Good meat is good meat, so I'll take it. And as he's trying to, like, pick it up... It's too heavy and he's kind of like just standing on a rock. So he like takes a tumble down a hillside and like knocks himself out at the bottom of the hill. Comes to later on and we are treated to the Japanese man who is only in a diaper. He's wearing a fundoshi, which is one of those like Japanese loincloths. And he's like foraging around all this shit and like eating the raw deer with his like hands. Yeah, he's on all fours, head buried in this deer's guts, just eating this fucking deer like an animal. And so of course, the hiker just freaks out and like tries to hide from him. And then like as he's looking around, he can't see him anymore. And then slowly the Japanese man crawls over the rock towards 
towards him and is like growling at him and reaching out towards him and his eyes turn red like in demon like or like almost like a beast size yeah. and then right when that happens it cuts back to the police station of his partner telling him this and he just goes bullshit and then like, <laughs> yeah. the, the lightning strikes which again there's that little bit of like humor mixed into an otherwise pretty dark movie yeah because this is just again imagine two bubba cops and one of them's just like man he told me this fucking story and like it was scary shit man like that's exactly like kind of the tone that it's doing yeah. you know at this point he kind of lays out this whole idea that there is a japanese immigrant who recently kind of moved to the area and he lives out in the woods by himself like deep out in the woods in this shack he kind of keeps to himself but everybody in the area is really suspicious of him immediately and for those that don't know this is definitely like a major factor in this entire movie there is and has been for fucking centuries a very like potent distrust of the Japanese by the Koreans because Korea you know this is some of that world history that you just don't fucking learn about if you grow up in American schools. Korea was invaded by Japan several times, you know, the worst being like in the 1500s where like they literally murdered their queen in the most brutal, insane way, right? So Japan and Korea have a very taut relationship, especially post-World War II after they were occupied by Japan. And I'm saying this with all the self-awareness that you know, we as Americans who are like in the most grossly imperialistic country right now, like America, trust me, like the, the sense of irony is not like gone on us, but yeah, we're pretty terrible. It turns out historically. Yeah. So Japan during World War II occupied Korea. There was a huge suppression of Korean culture. You know, women were literally turned into sex slaves for years. Like that was a very systemic thing. You know, lots of that generation not only died fighting for Japan, but died suffering under Japan's occupation. So that's not a come and gone, let's wash our hands of it kind of thing. It's just not. Japan today tries to play it off that way. They have, in air quotes, paid reparations. They have, in air quotes, apologized. But it all very much still just boils down to like, well, we did what we did and you should just get over it. And Koreans aren't happy about that, right? Like, that's not how they want to be treated. That's not how they want their suffering recognized. Especially since there is still a lot of people from that generation that are still alive. You know, like, that's kind of the other thing is you have so many kids, especially people like of this filmmaker's generation who were raised by their grandmothers kind of at this point, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you had a lot of parents, like, returning to work. A lot of women were going back to work. So a lot of children were raised by their grandparents at this time, and they are hearing a lot of this history. They're hearing a lot of what their grandparents had to go through and deal with. And so this anti-Japanese sentiment is a very historically rooted thing. And it's different than it is in a lot of other places in the world where you have either xenophobic or just straight up like racist kind of hatred amongst different groups like it's a different variation on that so the fact that this guy is only referred to as the Japanese man a lot of times too they call him the Jap in a slang derogatory kind of way absolutely yeah Yeah. like a derogatory slang term for him so that's part of the reason why there is a lot of immediate 
suspicion and distrust of this guy. It's not just that he's an outsider. It's that he's an outsider from a country that historically has been suppressive toward Koreans. So, you know, lots of places already have that fear of the outsider and fear of outside culture. You know, that's that's everywhere. That's every small town in fucking America where you have somebody from outside come in and shake things up. I mean, that's fucking footloose, you know? That's <laughs> yeah. every fucking movie or TV show you've ever seen about, like, somebody new coming into town and the people in the town being suspicious of them, right? Oh, God. Now I'm just, like, making all the ties in my head of this movie to Footloose. It's totally, like, that dynamic, but also with the added factor of he is Japanese. So keep that in mind as we're kind of talking through things. Like, that's kind of some of the backstory that I feel most Americans aren't necessarily going to be aware of because, you know, we don't fucking pay attention to history or culture anywhere outside of our own goddamn borders, you know? Keep that in mind. The Japanese man, again, is played by Jun Kunimura, who we were talking about earlier. And Fear of the Outsider is one of the biggest ones going on in this film, like, throughout the entire thing. Yeah. So, we hear this story from the deputy, who kind of heard it from, like, the town gossip, village idiot, whatever. And so, immediately, they're kind of calling bullshit on it. And then, you know, right then, the power goes out, because it's storming, raining really hard this night. They look over, and they're both spooked, because all of a sudden, there is a fucking naked woman, hair dripping over her face, creepy, standing in the rain. Yeah, like, Asian ghost fucking horror. Terrifying, yeah. Yeah, standing right outside the, like, glass doors of the police station. Just staring. And she's kind of lit up by the lightning, and both of them see her and flip the fuck out. So talk about, like, again, when what you mentioned before we, we got into the plot, juxtaposition of different things going on in this film. Like, this is a legitimately scary scene, but at the same time, I was laughing at the way they were fucking yeah. reacting to this, because it was like, a g-g-g-g-g-ghost! like kind of humor going on because like they're flipping out they're like hiding behind their desks he's yelling at his partner who I guess he technically outranks being like you go check it out you're the lieutenant you go figure out what's going on out there I saw something and other guys was like what'd you see what'd you see even though he saw it too again humor mixed with fucking straight up horror is and I've never seen another movie be able to pull it off like that where I was both scared and laughing at the same time as much as this. And on a fucking dime. Just instantly changing tones like that. It's so good. So, of course, like, the deputy goes outside and this woman has, like, disappeared. There's nobody out there. It's just raining. So, the next morning, (laughs) Jung-gu and his wife are caught having sex in their car by their daughter, Hyo-jin, which this scene was kind of hilarious. This was one of those parents trying to make shit happen still when like they live with their daughter and they live with the mother-in-law and like not having privacy and not having like any time to themselves so like what do you do you go fuck in your car like away from everybody else they're like all like right next to each other the walls look paper thin yeah (laughs) their daughter and their mother-in-law is sleeping like right next to them in the other rooms yeah and it's this couple awkwardly fucking in this car and right as they're like finishing up again kind of in a jump scare like knock 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 like on the window and the daughter's like what are y'all doing ah, 
everybody freaks out. <laughs> hey, Bart, you want to see my chainsaw? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, and before that, too, kind of like what leads to this is Jung-Gu is like woken up out of a nightmare. Like he's having a straight up night terror, it seems like, because like he's screaming and like convulsing his body, screaming at some woman to get off him. It basically disturbs everyone in the house. And then we cut to like the scene where it's them eating at breakfast. Well, I, I love the like camera perspective because you do see him rolling and writhing on the ground sleeping on his mat and he's screaming like you dirty slut uh get the fuck off of me ah 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 and then the camera like just changes direction and you see that he's laying down in a room that's literally like five feet from where his like young daughter or the mother-in-law are sitting and eating. <laughs> yeah. And then another camera trick that I thought was really good during like this breakfast scene is like in the background, you see the wife and she's like washing clothes, but kind of almost being kind of like, giving the wink wink. Yeah. Yeah. Like subtly suggestive, like it's time to bone down. And then, yeah, the next scene cuts to them in the car. Yeah. And I do love too, cause it's awkward sex and like right when they both climax and finish she's immediately like get off me you're too heavy <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just awkward but very like true to life kind of interactions between this couple and just this family in general but you know after the daughter catches them having sex you know immediately they're trying to like brush it off and he of course daddy daughter day <laughs> yeah takes her out on the town and buys her a bunch of candy and like toys and junk trying to like make the situation better then like there's this gorgeous just scene where they like sit on this riverbank and he's kind of talking to her about like you know what did you see how much did you see like how long were you standing there and she's just like eh whatever like I've seen it before and he's just like wait what (laughs) but just like the relationship between the two of them where there is like a very distinct level of truth between this father and like very young daughter where she clearly is already trying to act like she's more mature than she really is at the end of the day but just the fact that like they can be honest with each other is a very interesting dynamic kind of knowing where this movie goes at the end of the day so it's important to see how this relationship is initially set up and you know again the dynamic of like truth and honesty between them and we saw this a little bit in Train to Busan as well. It is a very Korean thing for like the mother-in-law to live with the family as well. Yeah. We see it here in America a lot from time to time of like a parent living with you, but uh, apparently it is a very Korean like tradition to have the mother-in-law stay with you in their older age. Yeah. So later that night, Jung-Gu is called to another crime scene. This time it's a house fire. We see that there were these two victims who were like charred and burned up that were pre- presumed to be dead but now like they are both up and wildly like running around growling yelling attacking people <laughs> one of them straight up tackles him yeah the police are trying to handle this situation but all these officers are like trying to keep their distance at the same time from these crazy people and i love it too because the captain's actually like at this scene and he's just like jesus christ could you get here any later take care of this situations and of course well, and he's, he's just, just like, like oh, oh my oh, my mother-in-law this, was um, sick. you lieutenant you take care of the situation he yeah. just like passes the buck down the ladder just again like he's a well-seeming guy but he's just a fuck up as a cop but then he gets fucking tackled anyway by yeah. like the woman who's they both kind of zero out. in on him specifically and he massively embarrasses himself in front of like 
his superior and all these other villagers. He just makes an ass out of himself on this entire situation, but he sees the Japanese man standing in the crowd, and they, like, make eye contact. And he has a camera. Yeah, he's got a camera. This is kind of one of those specific things, like, not to jump too far ahead, I guess, but it's kind of a well-known trope at this point that a lot of serial killers love going to the scene of their crimes. They would love, like, showing up to the scene of the murder to like kind of snoop around and chit chat with police officers and investigators and you know news people just to kind of see what information they could get to find out like maybe what they know and just because they're fucking conceited assholes so that's kind of what this reminded me of was like him just kind of maybe gloating over this scene if he is the one that's at the root of all this I also take the scene too is that this is where he really first notices uh, John Gu as well yeah. As like, I'm going to get involved in this guy's life, basically. Yeah. So the daughter, Hyojin, brings her father some clean clothes at the station and kind of shows her like clear disappointment with his cowardice in that moment. And she's super polite to the other officers, which yeah, is hilarious. Yeah, she's just like, fuck you, dad. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're fucking disgraced, dad. Yeah. But Junggu realizes that the woman they saw the night before, the like creepy naked woman in the rain, is one of the women who went crazy at this burned down house and again this is like the little piece of like if he actually applied himself he could be a good cop yeah. because he like deduces it from the bracelet I think hairpin yeah yeah like a hairpin right right on the ground and then is this also to where we find out that she had an encounter with the Japanese man as well so the next morning another villager that's like out riding a scooter finds the body of a woman the woman whose house burned they find her body also covered in boils looking all gross and zombie but she is hung from a fucking tree and like hung like from a tree hanging over the middle of a road like really eerie and also way too high up in the air yeah that's the other disturbing thing about it is like not only like is she hanging but like how the fuck did she get up there another instance of last scene I mean even the scene at the house fire like where he gets tackled by the woman going crazy is a good mix of horrifying and kind of some slapstick humor and then again the scene where his daughter comes and like delivers him fresh clothes is also kind of a comedic scene but then we go right into this darkness again because this yeah. is a horrifying situation but ultimately they kind of conclude that this woman who was hanging from the tree she stabbed to death the other members of her family and then burned the house down and Junggu is kind of then told by like again village gossip this time it's like the butcher told him that the woman had been previously raped by the Japanese man resulting in her like having a full just mental breakdown so it's clear that everybody is kind of blaming all these different things on different reasons but there's clearly a link and a thread between all of them that he somehow like hasn't quite pinned down but it's interesting just to see how everybody in the village is already throwing assumptions around thinking that they know like what actually happened and what caused what and they all kind of seem to tie back to the Japanese man somehow or another because he's just the one person that sticks out that doesn't belong. I think one of the reasons why they wind up eventually going to talk to like the butcher or like the guy who goes out into the forest is because they're they're noticing the boils and skin condition a little bit but they're also like blaming these freakouts, these basically mental breakdown on homicides on mushrooms that yeah mushrooms out in the forest that people yeah. are taking and then just like tripping balls like bath salts basically. That's what it reminded me of and I was kind of wondering like when did the whole bath salts thing happen here a couple of years back? Yeah like that's kind of what it reminded me was like oh they got these bad 
mushrooms and they just went crazy. Yeah. Yeah. 2014, 2015. Would have been around the same time. But yeah, Jungu and his deputy start discussing like all these links in these cases. I like how they're assigned to just guard the fucking crime scene of the burnt down house. Yeah. They're just sitting there doing fucking nothing, basically. Yeah, they're just like King of the Hill style, just like sitting out on the road, essentially in front of this house, just reading, dicking around, not doing anything. But they're kind of chit-chatting about what some of the links are. You know, there's the skin rash, there's these kind of would-be murderers who like snapped for no reason and then committed these crimes the deputy goes to question a local dermatologist about like what the skin rashes potentially are and they notice there's this girl who's kind of at the end of the street and she's just kind of been standing there throwing rocks not answering their questions (laughs) she's been like tossing rocks at them just kind of casually not like aggressively heaving like overhand chucking rocks at them she's tossing rocks at them to get their attention and at first i couldn't tell quite how older young she was supposed to be like at first it almost looked like she was child or teenager yeah she's like 20s yeah i thought it was just somebody fucking with them like and they yell at her once and she just kind of ignores them but neither one of them really wants to get up and like chase her off yeah so they just kind of let it happen because they're landing like on their feet or near them but not on their head or like yeah she's just throwing them casually right yeah. in front of them basically well i love how it goes to the deputy like talking to the dermatologist but then it cuts back to jungu and there's literally a fucking pile of rocks around his feet because <laughs> he's just been ignoring her this whole time. But either way, like, he finally gets up and, like, goes to confront her. And she claims that she witnessed the murder. She even says, like, yeah, the old lady that lived here said she was being stalked by the Japanese man before the murders happened and that he was a ghost who drinks blood. He wants to hold her as a witness. He's like, oh, wait, you saw all this stuff that happened? Yeah, hold on, hold on, hold on. He has to, like, answer his phone. And it's his deputy who basically says, like, yeah, the dermatologist didn't tell us shit. Then as soon as he hangs up and looks back this girl has disappeared well and she made an interesting point as they're talking like he says i've noticed him as well or heard about him and she leaves a cryptic warning of like if you're starting to see him more that means he has your scent basically yeah and another thing to note too she is wearing a white dress and then she has like a military jacket on over that So just keep that in mind, like visually, that's kind of one of those like smaller details that comes back around. So at this point, Jungu kind of hears a rustling behind this burned down house and he walks back there and he sees the fucking Japanese man in the like diaper eating the fucking deer. And of course, his attention gets drawn and the Japanese man full blown starts chasing him through the like rubble and ruins of this house. And, you know, Jungu like trips, but butt falls over and just fetal position like rolls up screaming as this guy kind of creeps over him but then you know boom he wakes up and it was just a dream so once he wakes up from this nightmare it's a legitimately kind of horrifying scene he wakes up to learn that his daughter is now sick she's not going to school the mother's caring for and going to get some medicine and everything I mean granted he kind of yells at his wife about this kind of in a shitty way but at the same time this is the competent father in him coming out because like he immediately is extremely afraid for his daughter i almost took it as he doesn't want to admit it to himself but maybe that like his daughter has something going on here like maybe he's starting to think that people getting sick or developing this rash or whatever leads to something really bad happening and he hasn't quite put the two to two together with his daughter just yet but i i think he feels some kind of dread now under normal circumstances it would just be like oh my daughter's sick let's take care of her and then send her back to school but considering everything that's happening he's a little more like 
paranoid than normal. Yeah, he's under a lot of stress, basically. Yeah. So Junggu and his partner are initially skeptical about like the official explanation about the mushrooms kind of being the cause of these sudden psychotic murderous outbursts. So they visit the villager who claimed to have seen the Japanese man eating the deer, the original like hiker guy. And they're also skeptical of his story too, because all the evidence that he really has to offer is just look in my freezer. See, I don't have any meat. I haven't gotten any meat because I've been so scared. Yeah. Yeah. Look at this bruise. Look at this bite mark. There's no real evidence necessarily. So they're kind of skeptical of him initially, but they basically kind of twist this guy's arm into like taking them back into the woods where the Japanese man lives like way deep in the forest, bringing them to where this guy lives. So on their hike, they eventually find, this is like way the fuck off in the woods. Like it goes from them like parking on the outskirts of the trail to them like hiking, sweating, all their ties are like undone and sleeves rolled up. Like they're just having a fucking hard time. It's just this deep off into the woods, but they find the carcass of the deer and the villagers backpack stuff like strewn everywhere. So this was like where it originally happened. And right about here is when the guy is just like, no, 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 fuck this. Like I'm I'm out. I'm out. (laughs) Bye. And it starts to rain heavily all of a sudden, like instantly starts to rain and thunderstorm really heavily. And they're like, no, you need to like show us this through. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like we need to go to this fucking house and figure out what's going on. And he's just like, fuck off. Like I'm going to report y'all leave me alone. Yeah. And as the villager guy is going to leave, all of a sudden he is like struck by lightning. And it's just kind of one of those like, oh shit. What did that? Fuck. Did that just happen? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I think even one of them, like I think maybe he makes a remark about lightning striking them, and then like literally five seconds later, he gets fucking struck by lightning or something. Like- yeah. So they bring this guy to the hospital. They're all just sitting there quietly, and his wife is sitting there, and she's just like, "What the fuck is the good of drinking all those herbal teas and shit for your health, and then you get hit by lightning? What the fuck kind of luck is that?" And we're we're laughing about it, but this yeah. is actually like all handled in a pretty serious. It's funny, but it's definitely played as serious, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that sounds fucking bonkers. Like, it's hard for us to give credit to this movie. It's all done so well, even though this all sounds kind of bonkers of like, oh, they go out to the woods and he's struck by lightning conveniently. So Jungu hears, like, a commotion coming from down the hallway. So he rushes down the hall and he finds, like, several other doctors and nurses trying to subdue the, like, catatonic murder from the first crime scene, right? The guy is like suddenly snapped back to like consciousness, but he is going fucking wild, growling, spasming and contorting to the point where he like contorts and flexes so fucking hard that he like breaks his own neck. And it's so fucking eerie because he's like hanging off the bed upside down when you do see this bone just snap in his neck and everybody kind of like, ah, and he just like gargles and spits blood that drips down his face and he dies. And you see this contortion a couple times throughout the movie where you either realize they're about to basically eat it or something really bad's about to happen. And when they contort and they contort their chest up and pull their shoulders back so much, almost like the bone sticks out in their chest too, because he does that for a second. And then, yeah, like this is one of the creepier death scenes I think we've covered on this podcast out of all the movies of just like, yeah, him halfway hanging off the bed and like the oxygen mask that's been on him is like covering up in blood because blood. Yeah. Pouring, like, and it's out just of them. so intense because there's so much screaming and yelling happening in that moment from him, from all the other people in the room. I- imagine if you just saw inextricably somebody who was comatose that looked 
horrible, looked like a zombie that had been comatose for like a fucking week, and all of a sudden they start freaking out and literally like contort until they break their own neck while 12 other people are sitting around watching it, unable to do anything. Like that's how fucking like weirdly helpless this whole situation is. And then it gets really quiet as he's just hanging there, blood pouring out of him basically. That's when he really like kind of sees more of the boils and shit all over the guy's skin as he died. So that night, the daughter Hyojin has a really intense nightmare. She's also kind of freaking out, screaming, rolling on the ground, contorting, kind of like Gongju was earlier. But she's claiming that a strange man was banging on the door, trying to get in. Which, again, like... Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah, right. And the next morning, Jonggu's mother-in-law tells him that she knows something's wrong with Hyojin. Between her being sick and then her behavior recently, like, she knows something's up. So she's going to consult with a shaman. One of the more darker tropes that uh, movies and stories in general sometimes do of possession turning you into, like, a really... Or having really terrible, angry outbursts and, like, saying shit that you would never say otherwise and just not acting like yourself because she starts doing this. Some of the stuff that comes out of her as this 10, 11 year old girl is pretty brutal. Yeah. And it gets worse in a minute. It's kind of the classic kids slowly becoming evil in air quotes kind of behavior, but it definitely gets more intense. Them like talking about sexual stuff is always like really weird because yeah. like she's about to point out some some things. Junggu and his deputy then decide to actually go out and visit the Japanese man's house again. Like they're going to make their second attempt out there. This time they bring along the deputy's nephew, who is a priest in training, like as a translator, because he spent some time in Japan and can speak Japanese. And this guy is a Christian Catholic priest in training like he wears whatever the like uh you're catholic i don't know what the word for it is but like the i don't i don't know what it is yeah (laughs) he wears like the collar the white collar and the black yeah yeah yeah. and uh he's he's a deacon right now because he's he's still in training yeah and i took his name as being john 23 like that's the name that he has like chosen to call himself by now they didn't say john i think they said like jong yeah like it was spelled like jong but then 23 so i i assumed it was like john 23 Yeah, I think it's supposed to be play on a Bible passage, I guess. Yeah. So when they get there, his shack, I mean, it's literally just that. It is a shack. It is also very ramshackle, junk everywhere. There's a huge black dog guarding this house as well. It's like on a chain staked into the ground. Talk about historical imagery, the devil being associated with a black dog. Yeah. And again, the omen had that too, actually. Yeah, really. But as they're nosing around, a couple things. Firstly, the deacon voices concerns about, wait, isn't this illegal? Why are we here? Are we supposed (laughs) to be here? And they're just like, shut up. We got to do this. This is for the good of everybody. Like, don't worry about it. And they just kind of blow him off. But he's kind of the one like moral compass that's there in this moment being like, I don't know. We should be here. As they're looking around, they find two things. One, the Japanese man has a full-blown shrine set up. And this is like a regular prayer shrine, but, you know, of course, it's going to be a little bit creepier because there's fucking goat heads and thorny vines and shit all over the place in addition to all these candles and stuff like that. This right here would be what would make me, like... 
I don't trust this person for the rest of this movie. <laughs> yep. Period. Right here, because this this is some satanic altar shit, straight well, up. Yeah, it definitely looks that way to us because the idea of like altars and shrines and prayer candles and all that stuff is already just very foreign to like our Western brains. But having like all the goat heads and shit, like yeah. that's where it gets kind of weird. Yeah, that's where it was. It wasn't so much the actual shrine aspect of it. I, I find all that stuff fascinating. It was more the like movie watcher consumer of media in me sure that was yeah. just like when i start seeing goat heads and like <laughs> I'm out. fucking mounted ravens and shit on your altar you, you i think you're going more towards the dark arts yeah well the creepier thing is the the deputy kind of sees like a light glowing between a crack in the wall and he pulls back all these jackets and there's like a weird little hidden crawl space door that he opens up and there's like a whole separate little creepy murder shrine in this crawl space where the walls are fucking plastered with hundreds of photos of murder victims. And when we say murder victims, like some are just people and then some are clearly just people dead. Bloody people. And there's hundreds of these fucking Polaroids all over the wall including pictures of these recent ones that they've been investigating. And not just pictures of those people dead, but those people like alive and happy before and even photos from the crime scenes so again going back to the whole like some killers like to go and like preside over their crime scenes after the fact as a looky-loo just to kind of see what's going on right now if the altar didn't get you this is where i would be like yes no matter what this guy is trying to accomplish even it's for quote-unquote good greater good reasons why do you have all these criminal (laughs) photos of dead people yeah there are criminals who like do things and you can understand why and then there are criminals who just do something where it's like no that's just wrong period and that's a one of those actions where that's something you shouldn't be doing period and to just make it worse there is also a pile of random belongings as well yeah and in this pile there is like a little white tennis shoe but right as he kind of discovers this whole creepy crawl space the dog fucking yanks its chain out of the ground and starts attacking Jong-Goo and the deacon outside and this is kind of humorous because they're struggling with this dog that's chewing on their pant legs and stuff like that and they're just rolling the ground screaming like kids but you know right as they get inside and like try to barricade the shitty little shack wooden paper door and the dogs like break through barking at them and they're like whacking it with pots and stuff (laughs) the Japanese man returns home so it's like oh shit wait we got caught you know and this dog immediately like stops attacking and you know kind of runs to him and is all like happy because master's home but yeah how the fuck like this guy shows up and is just like what the shit who are y'all what are y'all doing at my house why did y'all fuck my house up and there's just nothing said he knows why they're there but he doesn't make a fuss he just kind of lets them go on their way and you just see the three of them Jungu, the deputy and the deacon like all riding back to town that evening really kind of disheveled kind of bloody kind of dirty all of them are like wet from the rain well and they had the deacon translating for them because they were speaking in korean and the japanese man was speaking in japanese and like he gives like really just cryptic one-word answers of just like i'm here for traveling basically yeah they 
they do call him out on the pictures and he just brushes it off. Again, if they were better cops, they would just fucking bring this guy in. Well, they can't do that because they're there totally illegally. There's no warrant. That's the problem is like the Japanese guy like knows like y'all can't do shit to me. Like what are y'all doing in my fucking house, right? Technically, yes. But as yeah. they're driving back, kind of all dejected, wet from the rain, Junggu is like kind of pissed about how things went down, but that's when the deputy shows him there was all this shit. Y'all didn't see it. There were all these fucked up photos and like this whole weird thing. There's all this stuff that belonged to people and they were just like, this is fucking weird, whatever. And then he shows him the shoe and reveals that on the inside of the shoe is written Hyojin, his daughter's name. And that's when he's just like, oh no, like shit just got real. What the fuck is going on? I know he did get enough of an answer from that alone, but seeing where this movie goes later, I wonder if things would have turned out a different way, and I'm not going to say better or worse right now. I'm going to let us run through it to get there, but I wonder if things would have turned out a different way if he would have at least seen the inside of that room with all the Polaroids and stuff in there as well, because again, the deputy was the only one who actually got eyes on that room. Sure, yeah. And, like, that room is pretty fucking damning, Yeah. and later on what happens, it kind of frustrates me of like why don't you believe this one way but then i remember that he technically didn't see that room either like only the deputy saw it yeah and this is all still a case of is anything actually going on is there anything supernatural happening or is this just lots of paranoia lots of like fear of this outsider a weird skin disease is the mushroom explanation totally valid to explain the skin conditions and like the sudden weird like psychotic breaks in people again nothing about this japanese guy seems off except for that fucking room like that's the one thing where it's like wait that's fucked up and not in a supernatural way just in a very like killer fascistic like why do you have this kind of way yeah but anyway Junggu, when he returns home he questions his daughter about the japanese man further but at this point like you said she's really aggressively like petulant and just cursing at him it's very yes. much the like you don't know shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like kids slowly going evil kind of behavior. And um, later that night, he goes to search her room. And of course, he finds one of her notebooks. And it starts off like regular school writings and pictures. And then it becomes more and more disturbing. And her handwriting is one more of my and more favorite tropes. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. And then it, then it turns into just straight up like really horrific images. It's not even just like drawings of demonic stuff because there is a little bit of that. But then it also has pictures of like naked women having periods. Yeah. But like done in a really childish way so it's extra fucked up yeah he also notices that she is starting to develop a very similar kind of rash on the inside of her thigh and at that point she's been awake but she's been kind of watching him but this is the point where she then suddenly like says something to him to let him know like yeah I've been watching you this whole time you weird fucking creep like what are you doing in my room what are you doing like looking up your daughter's skirt why are you going through my things fuck you you weirdo like she's instantly like onto him and the mother-in-law like later in the morning like tells Junggu like yeah I talked to the shaman he is coming to visit tomorrow like before things start to get worse we gotta have him by because like something is off with her this next day, Junggu finally says, fuck it. And he goes back to the Japanese man's shack along with the deacon. He basically just goes and grabs the deacon. It's like, you're fucking coming with me. And they like 
trouch back out there and he finds that the murder shrine is now empty been totally cleared out it's like nothing was ever in that weird crawl space and he's getting pissed too because that's been pulled out uh, like all yeah. the pictures have been pulled out and like as they're questioning him about that he's just giving them like oh i burned him yeah he just claims all the photos are burning it's like fuck it like what are you gonna do you were here illegally the first time like so what you can't ever prove that any of that was ever here and jungu like at this point threatens the japanese man basically tells him like look you get the fuck out of the village period you have three days or i will fucking kill you and at this point like he is going full like crazy like he picks up a pickaxe and goes in this guy's house and just starts smashing the fuck out of the prayer shrine yeah the dog gets loose again and like runs in and starts attacking him again but then all you hear is like the dog whimpering and like the thud of the pickaxe and you see that he like killed the dog but he comes out like kind of covered in dog blood with the pickaxe and like throws it at the japanese guy's feet and it's like look fuck you get out of my goddamn town this is my area i take care of these people we don't want you here like get the fuck out now another horror movie another dead pet (laughs) yep and this is where like definitely the one moment in this movie where we really see jungu like go off the edge yeah this is him going way over the top aggressive in a way that is shocking for who this character is you don't think he's really got this in him based on like how he behaves throughout the earlier parts of the movie but this is also like you can tell he's fucked up by what he did but he's just doing this out of sheer desperation to like not only stop all these murders that are going on around them but also because like his daughter is now involved potentially involved along the same path so like he's still kind of in the state where it seems like he wouldn't say it outright but he does believe like this Japanese man is tied to this mysterious illness going on he doesn't quite know what to believe still but he just has that gut feeling that this guy is involved like he's past the point of like nah y'all just full of shit that guy's perfectly fine y'all are just being paranoid like he's now to the point where he's not really sure but he just has that gut feeling so the daughter's condition continues to worsen and it's kind of baffling the doctors they take her to you know we see the Japanese man praying like on his porch and this is a really eerie scene because you're seeing from the camera's perspective inside the house and the dog you know is being eaten by crows little by like these crows kind of like one flies up in the first moment and then you see like five or six crows like gathered around the dog and then by the end there's like 20 of these giant crows eating the dog while the Japanese man is just sitting still on the edge of his porch praying and he's just been like staring off into the distance all day because we see like you know the literally like the sun go up and down as this scene is progressing his poor doggy died that's what well no not really it's it's not just that but it's very unnatural too because these normally if the guy was just sitting in the doorway the crows wouldn't come and eat the dog like these crows are flying right by him landing right next to him and just hopping into the room it's unnatural to say the least but the next morning jungu's wife wakes up and as she like goes to walk out the front gates of their house compound she opens the gates and all of a sudden boom there's this giant fucking black goat hanging from the front gate of the house gutted just guts hanging out everywhere and Junggu like wakes up because he hears everybody screaming but he's unable to get up he is struggling on the floor like trying to stand up and his arms and legs are just not fucking working right so you know you can kind of maybe draw the conclusion that some kind of bad juju happened because of the encounter and the threats 
the day before. So Junggu's wife and mother-in-law take him to an acupuncturist to get his like arms and legs back up and going again. And the mother-in-law tells him there that like, yeah, the shaman's definitely coming tomorrow. We left your daughter with a neighbor in the meantime. And he's like, wait, what? Like y'all with the neighbor? The house, the fuck? So they rush home just in time to discover that the daughter Hyojin has stabbed the neighbor with like a pair of scissors. And the neighbor is like still alive, but like barely. She is like on the ground covered in blood. Everything in the room is fucking covered in blood. And the daughter is just kind of semi-catatonic sitting there with the scissors in her hand. You know, so as soon as they like rush in and knock the scissors out of her hand and like embrace her, she kind of snaps back into reality and starts crying. But then the daughter just like stays with them after the scene. Yeah. Well, they know that the shaman's coming, I guess. So they I just guess, but it off. I don't know what would happen legally in a situation like this in a village like this in Korea. But that kid would, uh, they'd be in juvie oh, right yeah, now. Oh, yeah, in the States, <laughs> like, like, done. That kid, that kid would be locked up. So the next day, the shaman named Ilguang arrives fucking guy. and starts kind of surveying the home area. And when we say shaman... What would you expect? You'd expect, like, a dude in robes, you know, religious jewelry, like, maybe some kind of weird hat, right? No. This guy is in, like, a fucking Armani suit and, like, turtleneck with, like, a nice watch, and he's got his hair pulled back in a ponytail and everything. Like, he's kind of a slick-looking dude to be a shaman, right? And to be fair, like, when he actually does do rituals, like, he he does dress the part. Oh, yeah. They, but uh, when he shows up, yeah, he, he shows up like a TV uh, psychic, basically. Yeah, like, he's driving... A nice car and i say all this because it's important for a point i'll make later but he starts kind of surveying the house area and he's doing kind of a whistling trick and eventually he's kind of like yo what is that pot over there and they're like oh it's just soy sauce cool bring it down here and so he smashes this soy sauce pot open like it's one of these big clay pots this is not just the family mind you like these are neighbors as neighbors well are around. gathered around like there's kind yeah. of a scene now yeah but he smashes the soy sauce pot open that's kind of hard to say soy sauce pot. soy sauce pot soy sauce pot hush um anyway he <laughs> smashes it open and there is like a dead crow inside and everybody is kind of like oh god what the you know, fuck? Like, here it is like there's you know bad juju happening and he's immediately like this is not only an evil spirit this is like one of the worst ones i've encountered ever basically yeah he's like everything i'm sensing here is like the strongest evil i've ever encountered um and he said you know this is only something that would result from like someone having been intensely like provoked like this evil doesn't just happen and Jonggu kind of in his head is like, yeah, I'm, I might have an idea of like Whoops. how that started, right? <laughs> yeah. Yet another family murder happens suddenly. Il Guang, the shaman, tells Jonggu that like the evil's got to be stopped. He's like, you know, this is the ultimate. It's got to be stopped or destroyed or it's just going to continue until yeah. everybody's dead. Yeah. Yeah, this whole village is fucked if we don't. <laughs> and Il Guang tells him like, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to perform a death hex and it's going to be super intense and you can't interrupt it and you have to do everything the way i say it and you like cannot drink you cannot have sex you have to eat right sound familiar nothing can mess this up yeah, yeah sound dark familiar song. if you watch the dark song but the one thing i'll say is this while they're having this conversation the shaman is changing out of his white prayer robes back into his like everyday clothes 
Not only is he also wearing a fundoshi, but he then puts on like black street clothes. Like he puts on like a black soccer jacket and jeans and everything. Not and he's cursing too. He's like dropping f bombs. Like this guy is clearly not your like average Buddhist shaman kind of guy, right? He's like the modern take on it. Yeah, this sounds like he's a shyster, but the movie does it in a way where you almost trust him more than you would if he showed up and acted all holy or shaman-like. Totally. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it makes you trust him even more that he actually does know what he's talking about because he's very to the point and all that. And I thought there was a scene too, like when he's like exploring around their house and interacting with the daughter where like it would turn into that a yet again horror trope of he gets scared away basically, but it actually doesn't happen. And in fact, he's more just like, no, I recognize this evil and it needs to be stopped. And so it kind of draws you in to believe in him as a shaman. Something else too that, that was funny. And again, they do this in a dark song as well. Despite having to like abstain from all these vices of like sex and drinking and all that, they're both chain smoking. Yeah, totally. <laughs> They're both just smoking cigarettes, like just like in a dark song. I guess the spirit world is cool about that. They don't care about nicotine. Yeah. Now this next scene, like this is one of the highlights of the movie for me. Like this entire fucking sequence is so fucking good. This is a good scene. So we see a lot of cross cutting between the shaman Ilguang and like his team preparing for this giant death hex ritual that they're going to do. And the Japanese man and preparing for some dot 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 ritual that he's doing. We see the Japanese man going to the village and buying like these black chickens. Uh, they might even be roosters, I'm not sure, but they're black. I think they were roosters, yeah. He gets like six of them. There's a funny part too where he's riding on a bus back to his shack in the middle of the woods. All these chickens on leashes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all the chickens are leashes and like everyone's kind of just staring at him like, what the fuck? And he's ignoring yeah. everyone. We essentially see the Japanese man like goes to this truck that is like wrecked out in the woods and there is a dead body in the truck and it's one of his victims potentially like it's one of the people who disappeared after murdering their whole family yeah because the dead body has boils and shit all over it as well yeah and it's contorted so it looks like it died in that unnatural way and what we kind of figure out is this while the shaman Ilguang is like trying to exercise the evil out of the daughter Hyojin, the Japanese man is trying to resurrect one of his victims. Like, literally bring this body back to life because he, like, covers the truck in candles and charms and all this other bullshit. And he has a picture of the man at his shrine where he's praying. He has all the chickens, like, hung up from the roof of the shack and he's banging on a drum and praying. Meanwhile, Il Guang and his team, he has all these assistants and they're banging drums as well and he's singing and he's running around, throwing swords around and spitting like chicken blood on like a giant wooden effigy of some kind of evil figure and he's chopping it with the swords and stabbing pig carcasses like it's this whole giant wild fucking thing. And it's just enough to where it looks like an actual real ritual that would be performed and would take a lot of preparation Yeah, along with being kind of theatrical 
but the the cuts between him and the Japanese man in the shack it's so fucking intense yeah because the Japanese man is also doing a ritual and it's just as intense but it's more intense in a quieter darker way yeah because like he's surrounded by black Brewsters and uh, whereas the shaman is all in white and even though he's also slaughtering animals they're all like white chickens and it looks like it's more of a purification kind of ritual whereas the Japanese man's ritual seems much more like gutter dark magic and the way these scenes are kind of juxtaposed and cutting back and forth between them it almost seems like the Japanese man is almost trying to do a ritual to like save himself and it isn't until you're putting like the details together that he's actually trying to do something with the body of that victim out in the woods Yeah. but at first it it leaves you just enough in the dark of what are they trying to accomplish here like is he trying to cast a counter spell to this death hex and the way that it's played out like seeing these essentially like two dueling shamans like doing battle psychically spiritually against each other like in completely different areas of this village two different rituals yeah it's very very effective the way the whole thing is put together another pretty important detail we kind of glossed over but again it's like one of those things where you have to be watching it to catch us as they're showing like kind of their montages of prepping at one point the japanese man is almost like doing his own kind of cleansing ritual where he's basically almost naked and he's also under a waterfall and like is praying under a waterfall as the water like water is washing over him and in the distance you see the woman in white who has been kind of miss missing from this movie since that one scene the girl earlier who was like throwing the rocks yeah yeah like she's been kind of missing for almost an hour in this movie she finally reappears and she's watching him from a mountaintop but like she's obviously spying on him because she's the expression on her face is that of concern um like she's kind of watching something she shouldn't be yeah so keep that in mind as well because that's a pretty important part right at the height of this scene il guang the shaman throws this wooden effigy down onto the ground that he is burned and like spit blood on and everything else and he takes these giant fucking iron spikes and starts hammering them into this wooden effigy if you've ever like seen anything specifically i've seen this more in japanese horror exorcism kind of ritual of the idea of like having a nail that has like some kind of etching in it and hammering that nail into something to like bind a spirit or exercise a demon that's a very common thing at least in video games that have a lot of uh japanese or just asian culture in it specifically horror games but the idea of a nail being driven into something as part of a ritual is a very uh key thing yeah as he's doing this as he's nailing these giant iron spikes in we see not only that hyojin the daughter is like suffering begging like please make him stop make him stop to the point where like jungu and his wife can no longer stand it they're both kind of on the edge of like calling the whole thing off because of how hard their daughter is suffering but we also do see the Japanese man like suddenly taking a spike in the back and you could tell it's like harming him somehow right and he's like now crawling on the ground across his little shack and he's also suffering and screaming and yelling and he has stopped his ritual but at this point Junggu like runs out like he just can't stand any longer he runs out and just aggressively interrupts the death hex ritual like he smashes some of the drums and like starts screaming and yelling and just interrupts the 
the entire thing and demands that everybody stop. And all of a sudden, we see the Japanese man had, like, finally passed out from pain back in his shack. But as soon as everything stopped, he, like, <gasps> regains consciousness. Yeah. And he, like, crawls over to his bed and, like, bundles himself up in blankets and is just cowering, kind of feverish all of a sudden. And he looks out and, again, just sees the woman in white kind of watching him from, you know, the distance of the forest. Yeah. So, at this point, Junggu is just like, fuck it. So, they take the daughter to the hospital. Yeah, they, like, kind of rush her to the hospital because she's still, like, not doing well here. Well even worse, you know, once he interrupted everything, she is now suddenly kind of in a comatose state. Like, her eyes are rolled back, and she's all contorted. Like, she's now no longer cognizant at all since he interrupted the ritual. So, he leaves and goes to consult with the Christian priest nearby that the deacon that we meet earlier in the movie, like, the deacon kind of is practicing under this priest. Well, and the priest, he explains everything to the priest, and the priest is like, yeah, that's kind of disturbing, but honestly, like you kind of have to let the doctors in the hospital do their job and treat your daughter because there's really nothing here that I can do for you. Yeah, he's just very dismissive of the whole possession situation. He's dismissive of like the Japanese man being some kind of, you know, hungry ghost and he basically just says like, look, the church can't help you. The church has like nothing they can do for you right now. Yeah, because I almost took this as like the deacon maybe thinking like, oh, maybe we can try a Christian exorcism instead. And like the priest is kind of just like, fuck off who you think we are like priests just don't do exorcisms all the time it's kind of the attitude i was getting well not just that but he definitely has the attitude of like oh yeah you like primitive basic backwards people and your shamans and your cute yeah, folk religion. Like, he definitely has that christian superiority complex as well where he's just like uh y'all are just paranoid and like y'all are just kind of backwards thinking so it's just you know it's all in your heads right just like a priest yeah so Junggu decides to take things into his own hands. So he it's gathers It's time to form a posse, boys. Yeehaw! Basically, yeah. He gathers a group of guys. It's like the butcher that we see earlier. It's him and like some of the other guys in the village. They all gather up. Oh boy, and are are these guys the prime heroes that this village deserves? <laughs> well, I love too that as they're all just like, yeah, and they're all throwing like weapons into the back of this truck. It's all rakes and yeah. shovels and yard equipment and then there's just some chains and a cinder block a bunch of fucking old ham bones like it's just That's whatever the, the fuck one. they can find they can hit yeah. somebody with they're just like dumping all this shit in the back of a flat to be bed. fair it's pretty effective weaponry if you want it to be sure yeah but yeah they do it in like a really redneck way basically of just like let's pile in anything we think that can be mildly deadly into this pickup truck and then since there's like six of us three or four of y'all are gonna ride in the back the whole way yeah so they drive this flatbed truck to the shack and they hike their way up there and they find that the Japanese man's shack is empty, but they notice something kind of in the brush and something's moving around and all of a sudden, the fucking dead body that was in the truck earlier is now like a fully animated zombie thing. His ritual did succeed, so he resurrected this fucking body essentially to protect him. Like, that's all this zombie thing is there for. Well, and and there's a scene too where like, as all this is happening, where it cuts back to the Japanese 
Japanese man, like also still seemingly kind of weakened from the night before with those dueling rituals, wandering to the truck later on. Yeah. And seeing that it's empty now and shit shoved out of the way, like as if the body had got up and got out of the truck and moved everything out of the way and ran into the forest. And like he kind of just like looks off in the distance and starts going after it, it's implied. Well, yeah, he definitely resurrected this body to protect him because he clearly knows that these people are like on his case now. So that was kind of the main impetus behind him doing that whole ritual. But the zombie essentially attacks the posse and the zombie's very like unstoppable for a moment. Like even the normal zombie killing stuff, you know, stabbing it in the head, whacking it in the head, like none of that seems to be working. This was the scene I was talking about at the very beginning of like being the most- This is the most like Laurel and Hardy slapstick shit. Yeah, yeah. like horror, a legitimately terrifying scene mixed with Scooby-Doo antics. As gung-ho as this group was, there's six of them again and they are all armed with weapons and like weapons that can keep people and things out of their reach. Yeah, like you were saying, like rakes, like you can shove somebody away from you with a rake from pretty far. They like let the zombie like run up right up on them and cower in fear. They make no effort to actually like do something to stop this zombie thing from attacking them and of course the thing hits gets the deacon and like takes a chunk out of his cheek and like then fucking takes a chunk out of another guy and then tackles Jong Gu and the whole time I'm like y'all have weapons. It's faster than a traditional zombie I guess but not by much. It's pretty noob of you to like get fucking taken out by this thing. (laughs) Yeah but eventually this zombie thing kind of succumbs to the same self-destruct that we've seen the other people do. Like again the guy in the hospital who like contorted until his neck broke. Basically the same thing happens to this you know zombie like the other possessed killer. So it seems to be some kind of like self-destruct thing where like the curse or charm or whatever kind of wears off. So at this point as they're all kind of like catching their breath Jungu spots the Japanese man who is like hiding off in the bushes like observing everything so they chase him through the fucking forest and eventually Jungu like breaks through to the edge of a cliff and the Japanese man seems to have like vanished into thin air right they don't see him over the edge of the cliff he's like nowhere around right in reality he was slowly climbing down the steep cliff to where he was at an angle out of view where they couldn't see him like looking over the edge but you know the men are all kind of dejected and hopeless and they're just like fuck it we failed so Jungu is like crying to one of the guys being like I failed my daughter I failed my family because we can't find this guy yeah but as they are all driving home in this flatbed in the rain Jungu is like trying to take a call from his wife and he swerves from an oncoming truck this is a mountain road downhill in the rain he starts swerving and loses control a little bit and as they are almost spinning out on this road all of a sudden wham they fucking hit a body out of nowhere Something just like smashes into the windshield. They're like, oh shit. And as the like truck finally screeches to a halt, they all get out and they walk back up the road and discover, oh shit, that's the Japanese man. Yeah. He was like running down the mountain to get away from us. And now we just accidentally fucking by chance hit him with the fucking truck. As it's shown that he was hiding on the cliffside, he actually like falls down the cliffside and looks like yeah. he's basically injured him. 
himself pretty badly and then he sees the woman in white looking at him again and he actually she's also just there mysteriously yeah and like he actually gets up and starts chasing her in the forest and then you're assuming that in chasing her through the forest he ran out into the middle road and then got nailed by by them in yeah. the truck but jong and his guys basically say fuck it and they like dump the Japanese man's body over the guardrail of the road oh and the woman in white was watching them dump the body as well yeah and then he returns to the hospital and finds that his daughter Hyojin is awake and seemingly back to normal so the mother-in-law immediately just credits the shaman for like lifting the curse like oh it's all you know Ilguang's credit you know he's the one that did all this meanwhile Junggu is still like unfucking convinced he's basically just convinced like no I fucking took this guy out like I'm the reason why all this stopped I went and took care of the root of the problem he's just not putting a whole lot of credit toward the shaman right yeah and he's even like declining calls from the shaman he's just ignoring the guy like 100% and there is a brief moment after they hit him with the truck the Japanese man where it like cuts back to the shaman at his house and he like kind of senses from afar like oh yes my death hex worked he's dead. It's not just that though because this is where I started suspecting something was up with the shaman because after that happens he doesn't necessarily say like oh my death hex worked he says the rat ran right into my trap and it's not a celebratory type of thing when they hit the shaman and then dump his body. The way this movie it does it is you still feel like something's off and something's wrong and like this doesn't help anything yeah the way that the shaman says that in that brief cut to him as he's almost kind of watching it from afar as well maybe in some way the way he says the rat fell into my trap is very sinister sounding yeah to the point where like is he actually talking about Jonggu or is it the Japanese guy he's talking about yeah totally well and, and another thing too that we kind of glossed over but it's pretty important to this movie is earlier in the film like when they finally meet the shaman and him and Jonggu are having a conversation of preparation for the next day for the ritual. He's asking the shaman what is it with this guy? Like how can this guy be undead if he's still alive? And how can he be a ghost? And, and the shaman keeps telling him stuff like just because someone is walking around eating and breathing doesn't mean they're necessarily alive. Like there are plenty of entities like that out there and maybe he was a human once but he no longer is. I'm guessing maybe he was like a priest or a monk of some kind until he became this way. And yeah. And then he asks him, why us? Why this village? Why me? Why my daughter specifically? And the shaman says he's just fishing. You do, you go out fishing, but you don't know exactly what type of fish or how big you're going to catch. Yeah. He's just fishing. He doesn't know what's actually going to bite either. And it just so happens that your daughter bit. She took the bait. There's the callback to the very first scene of the movie where you see the Japanese man fishing. Exactly. So at this point, the deacon is called to a crime scene. He's been in the hospital since he got attacked by the zombie thing but the police basically drag him out to a crime scene where they show that his uncle the deputy has essentially succumbed to the same fate as the other villagers where he went crazy he killed his landlady while in a possessed state and now is suddenly catatonic and the police you know are still officially blaming these outbursts of violence and murder on like bad mushrooms but now we see like oh okay the deputy just got got and like you even see a couple news reports or sort of like a news report once or twice and people like gathered in front of like the city hall of this village and even in those reports they're they're still blaming it on the mushrooms so that's just the route that the official public statement goes 
Yeah. At this point, the shaman, Il Guang, drives to Zhang Gu's house because, you know, he's been ignoring his calls. And as he attempts to enter the front gates, all of a sudden his nose starts to bleed. And then it starts to really fucking bleed. And then his nose is just gushing blood. And then he fucking pukes. Yeah. He looks <laughs> over and sees the woman in white who is like standing in the shadows, seemingly guarding the house. And he begins, like you said, just violently like vomiting blood just he's on all fours just puking blood in the road and she basically tells him like you have to leave get the fuck out yeah Yeah, like get out of here leave these people alone he rushes home and begins frantically like praying at his giant shrine and then a fucking black crow smashes through the window and starts flopping everywhere and destroying the shrine and knocking over candles so then he's just like fuck it so he gets all of his shit packed in his car and he starts blasting on the road now he's just like I'm dipping out of town bye and as he's driving on the highway his car starts just getting bombarded by moths initially it's just one like splat on the windshield and then two splat and then it's just like just like a rain hail it's a hailstorm yeah and he like slams you know on his brakes because now he can't see where he's driving and he gets out screaming flailing his arms all these moths and then this there's no moths it was all an illusion yeah he's just like ah fuck like something is keeping me from seeing this family once again he calls Jonggu. And he turns around too, like, because he was driving towards the exit to go to back to Seoul. Now, yeah, he turns back to go back to the village, yeah. And uh, it turns around and he drives right by a sign saying the village's name. So, like, he's finally like, nah, fuck this. I gotta stay, basically. Yeah. And he calls Jonggu, and Jonggu actually answers this time because he's kind of feeling guilty about dodging his calls earlier. And now, of course, the shaman is in a fucking panic. And he's just like, look, I misread everything. I was wrong. I completely misread the divination. The Japanese man's not the one you should be afraid of. He was another shaman. Yeah, he was another shaman. He was trying to help. This woman in white, you've seen her. You know who I'm talking about. She's the one you have to be afraid of. And the Japanese man was trying to stop her. The Japanese man was here trying to protect everybody. You know, this is all my fault. Oh my God. But like, you got to get home. You got to get back to your family. Yeah. He's like, you specifically got to find your daughter and go back to her right now. Yeah. And so he does. He rushes home and his daughter's missing now. Yeah. So he starts running around first their property, just looking around for her. And then he goes off their property and he's like kind of just running through the village looking for his daughter. Their house is kind of set aside from everything, but it's more just he's outside of their house comedy. Compound. They have like a big driveway open area and then their house proper is two buildings that are kind of set and built around that area. Yeah. And he's like yeah. outside of the walls of his house and he's kind of behind where this like shed is and there's like a cornfield butting up to it. So he's, you know, on the back. So I imagine like going out behind a shed like at your house, right? Yeah. And this is where he runs into the woman in white and she's just there. And so he's just like okay like you have to tell me what's going on she claims that oh no the japanese man is actually the evil behind everything and he's like that's impossible i fucking killed him and she's just like do you think death has any sway over someone like that 
Yeah. She says Junggu brought the evil back with him to his house. Because he's asking her, he's like, so why my daughter? Like, why my family? Like, why any of this? And she basically just says, like, look, send to the father. Like, you fucked up. You brought this evil back with you. Remember the first time that you encountered the Japanese man that you thought was a nightmare? What if he did actually get into you at that point and you just thought it was all a dream? But she basically says, like, look, you poked him. You fucked with him. Y'all have been blaming him from the beginning. So, like... Like, this is all just kind of coming back around at this point. That's why, like, you specifically. That's why your family specifically, because you brought this on yourself. That dream he had where he talks to her as he's going through the burnt down house and then she just disappears. That's where I'm wondering, was that actually a dream or was there some reality to that? Exactly, yeah. And we're kind of led to believe now that might have been real. And that his mind went blank maybe for the rest of the day or something and he thought it was a dream. And some other stuff too that the woman in white says here. This is where there's also some cross-cutting. This is where all the payoff starts happening of all this creeping dread, of all this setup. Because now we're cross-cutting between him and the woman in white, his house with the mother and the grandmother looking for the daughter. And now we're following the priest again, or the deacon, because the deacon, you see the deacon preparing, like he's saying the Lord's Prayer. He has like the sickle with him. He has this cross wrapped around the sickle. Yeah, he's finally going like fucking Charles Bronson, Death Wish, but in a priest kind of way. Like he gets like his holy sickle and his Bible and he's like, fuck it, I'm a holy man. I'm going to like nut up and go take care of this. Basically, he's slowly making his way back to the Japanese guy's house because he's not convinced that they actually killed him after what he saw with his uncle. Yeah. Meanwhile, the woman in white and John Goo are having this conversation. Meanwhile, they're looking for their daughter. Oh, wait, she's mysteriously at the entrance of their compound, looking really weird and staring out off into nothing. And then she just walks right by the mother and grandmother, like back into the house and they follow her back. As all this is happening, the woman in white is explaining to him because he's just like, where's my daughter? What have you done with my daughter? And she's just like, your daughter's back at home, but you can't leave right now. You can't yeah. go see her right now. And he's like, why can't I see her? She's just like, I've set up this trap for the demon he's already at your house in your daughter basically and you can't leave until a rooster crows three times yeah and Junggu looks over and he sees the same bundle of herbs nailed to a nearby post on the entrance of their home so it's the same thing that we saw at the very beginning like clearly like the woman in white had tried doing this and tried trapping this demon before but he doesn't know that he can believe her because he's still not sure if she's actually telling him the truth or not right I don't know if this was intentional or not but there's a little bit of the denial of peter in the bible totally. kind of in this scene because that's three denials before the rooster crows yeah and this is you have to wait with me and just trust me until the rooster has crowed three times so there's a lot of juxtaposition with that and the denial of peter from the bible totally um, which i thought was interesting because like the shaman calls him again while he's with the woman in white trying to talk doubt into him. Yeah, yeah like don't trust anything she says and after he gets off the phone with him she's just like that was your shaman wasn't it this is where the reveal comes out that she claims that he is just a mere pawn of the real demon which is the japanese man he's in on all of this too but he keeps asking her like well what the hell are you then are you a ghost are you a person are you a shaman and she just basically gives like a cryptic answer of just she basically just tells him like it doesn't matter just listen to what i'm telling you like have faith that i'm leading you in the right direction i'm the thing saving your daughter and your family's life basically at this time 
and I'm the one who can trap this demon. Meanwhile, the deacon makes it to the Japanese man's house. The house is empty. The house is empty. But he sees that there's like a light kind of off in the distance and he goes toward it and finds that in the side of the cliff there's like this cavern and there's like a little door over it. So he like goes into this winding cavern and there's like a little river that runs through the bottom of it but he makes his way down into this cavern and finds the Japanese man seemingly alive again and he's like kind of bloodied but huddled near a fire with a blanket thrown over his shoulders for warmth and he's just kind of sitting there and he's clearly been like down here for a little while isn't there shit kind of hanging around this cavern too like isn't there kind of like a makeshift sort of setup in this cavern that he's hunched over yeah I mean there's it's kind of like a shrine that he's built down there too and yet again another kind of menacingly looking shrine yeah and at first he's very kind of feeble and looking injured and you know playing it off as like yeah I don't know what happened but I'm hurt I'm weak or whatever I just wish everybody would leave me alone and the deacon asks him like look show me your true form show me who you like really are and that's when the japanese man's tone like completely changes like he, yeah he laughs face changes and he just has this like high-pitched evil laugh and he basically just says like i am the devil yeah because he's like who do you think i am and the deacon who was a badass is now cowering in fear yeah. it's just like i think you're the devil and then he's basically like well then i guess that's what i am bingo we then see again like the daughter hyojin she is in the middle of the kitchen just eating every fucking thing in the fridge. Like, ravenously. That's like a common trope of, like, demon ghost stuff is that they're, like, hungry, insatiable. They're just gonna keep eating, eating, The hunger. Yeah. The hunger. Eating raw fish with their hands, like an yeah. animal. Yeah. You know, again, the woman in white is imploring Jungooch just stay firm, stay where he's at. You know, the rooster crows once, the rooster crows twice. You know, but eventually he turns to walk away and suddenly she is right on top of him holding his arm. Like she seems to like teleport from like 10 feet away. That's when he notices not only is his daughter's hair clip on the ground where the woman was standing but the woman is also wearing the sweater of another victim that had died previously and this is when he's just like oh shit wait why are you wearing yeah, she also had in like the military jacket yeah, she had a like- couple of like victims clothes and pieces on her yeah so this is further when he starts like having doubts around what her actual intentions are and she notices that and tells him like look you're getting the wrong idea about this don't let that change your mind like trust me stay with me here but then he's finally just like no fuck it I have to save them because he's getting hysterical and it's not really a good reason to like what the final like nail in the coffin of him doubting her is but he claims that how did she get sick before I even like mess with the Japanese guy so that means you're lying he still doesn't believe her that he brought any evil with him back to the house because he's like, I'm not a sinner. Like, I didn't do anything wrong. When he clearly did, he'd been a fuck up for a while now. And for whatever reason, she can't really give him the straight answers. Like, she has to be cryptic with him. But at the same time, like, she can't outright answer his questions, which was a little frustrating. Well, she tells him, like, you have to have faith. You just have to trust me. Don't worry about the specifics. Just trust I'm leading you in the right direction. It's a lot of that trope that you see in other horror movies or just stories in general of the heavenly or good 
spirits have to be cryptic they can only guide they can't intervene and you have to be the one to come to that realization of goodness whereas like the evil forces can directly intervene and fuck with you and that's very much what it felt like here in this scene of like the evil is going to do what it's going to do and it will intervene and do things directly to you physically in the real world goodness and hope is all kind of in the eye of the beholder and the person themselves has to take that step of faith yeah. to like have good triumph and jungu uh, is not the hero we need right now. He is the hero we definitely deserve because he fucking takes off. At that point, he's just like, no, I don't believe any of your bullshit. You know, my daughter was sick before this happened. You have all these items of all these victims. I'm out of here. And he runs after the daughter. And at this point, the woman in white is just dejected. She just looks defeated completely for the rest of this movie. Yeah. She like slumps up against the shed and is not crying, but just looking very dejected. Yeah. Because she knows what's going to happen at this point. And then immediately, like, a storm rolls in. It starts lightning and thundering and pouring rain again. Yeah. And sure enough, Jong-Gu runs onto his compound, and as he runs by all the stuff that she put up, ginseng or whatever herb it was withers away. Like, you see it wither away. Just like at the beginning of the movie that he found, like, the rotted bit of it on that other house as well. Yeah, he goes into the kitchen and finds that his wife and mother-in-law have both been brutally murdered. They're both covered in blood. And he kind of slumps to the floor at this point, and... And his daughter, Hyojin, enters the room and he's begging for her forgiveness. Just, I'm sorry, I never meant for any of this to happen. And we cut back to the Japanese man and the deacon. And at this point, the Japanese man, we see him take a camera from like the blanket that he's, you know, got around him. But we see that his hands transformed. His hands are now like covered in hair with long pointy nails. His head is bald but has horns and his ears are pointy and he is suddenly like literally turned into a fucking demon. Yeah. He takes the deacon's photo with the camera and just basically tells him like look you can only leave if you promise to do no harm to me and leave me alone forever. We again see the woman in white defeated essentially like leaning against the shed and the shaman Ilguang he returns to Jung Yu's house. It's pretty early in the morning at this point. It's like probably four or five in the morning. Sun would just be rising. It's still raining yeah. out. Yeah, he pulls up and he walks right by like the daughter who's just sitting on the porch in a catatonic state, just like the guy at the very beginning yeah. of the movie. Nothing is really phasing. Nothing's him. phasing He's not him. Scared like, of anything. Whatever protective energy was around the house that kept him out earlier is now gone because he's able to just walk right, you know, in. This seems like just business as usual. Like he's done this many times before. Like he walks right up to each member of the family with his own camera and is taking pictures of the dead bodies. Then as he leaves, you see him piling back up his car. He drops a box on accident. And you, what you see in the box is the box is full of all those pictures that were hanging in the Japanese guy's house that he said that he had burned. Yeah, in the murder shrine. The shaman has him. Then the movie ends with John Gu, who's in the house. I don't know if he's also been stabbed and is dying from his injury or just traumatized. He's just hallucinating and he remembers a happy year time with his daughter where like they're riding a ride at a theme park and he begins to smile and then just assures his daughter that he's going to protect her and then the movie cuts to black and that's how it ends yep promising her that he'll take care of everything because he's a policeman 
Yeah, and this is where I wanted to do like a comparison to Train to Busan because this is a very similar ending, but in radically different directions. Yeah. Where, spoilers, I guess, for Train to Busan, the father in Train to Busan doesn't fuck up, and that's what makes his death tragic. He doesn't fuck up at all. In fact, he comes back around and real like does the right thing throughout the rest of that movie, saves his daughter, saves the other woman who is pregnant, and it was something that was kind of unavoidable. He gets bit. It doesn't end right on his on the scene but it basically ends with the last thing he sees is a beautiful memory of him and his daughter of a happier time of her birth and that's how he goes out this one does the same thing but it's ending on such a dread downer ending and it's him also hallucinating have a happier time with his daughter but you can assume from here that his daughter's fucked his daughter's going to have that self-destructive episode where she will die too probably from contortion and pretty soon the demon one had his way evil one evil's unleashed and that's just the way it is like and he's now just hallucinating a happier time to deal with the trauma i guess or as he's dying yeah there are a couple things i wanted to reevaluate as the shaman is leaving the village after he like he's accosted by the woman in white and then the moths start hitting his car do you think that's the demon being like no you're not fucking done yet buddy like you're my pawn you need to turn your ass around and get back into this village that's what i took it as yeah yeah. that's what i took it as he initially gets scared by the woman in white's protective charm or whatever that caused him to just like gush blood and he's like you know fuck it i'm gonna try to get out of here but yeah the demon is essentially the one who's just like no you're not bro yeah so yeah there's definitely like a link between them I think I took it as he's the familiar of the demon. Totally. That ritual he was actually doing at the house wasn't hurting the demon. I think he was either aiding the demon and resurrecting that guy, or he was doing the death hex towards the woman in white, actually. I think it was a combination of that. Not only was he, like, further cementing the hold that the demon had on Hyojin, but he was also trying his best to, like, basically put a death hex toward the woman in white because she was the one actually trying to protect the village. And that's something that I had to do a little bit of research on, but there's definitely, you know, a lot of tradition in Korean and a lot of Asian folklore in general about village protective spirits. That's what I took it as, is she's either a village spirit or a spirit that kind of has been chasing this demon and the shaman yeah. for a while and keeps failing at it, basically. I don't think she can pursue him, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, but like, yeah, she seems like she's the spirit of the village or even the spirit of his victims like as a collective because she's wearing all their items. That's what I took it as and that they have done this cat and mouse game before and the demon has always won and it always comes down to her having to convince somebody to have faith to just let things happen or like be patient and they never do. That's the way I kind of took it which I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if she was confined to this village and this demon has done this more than once in the village itself or if she has tried to do this in the past and other places that the demon has manifested. So, a couple of things on that. Firstly, kind of like I was trying to like point out a few times, the shaman from the beginning is sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> if you think about just the basic tropes of what you know of like what a Buddhist monk shaman should look like, not wearing designer clothes, not smoking.
smoking, not cursing, preoccupied with their like looks or material wealth. Like the guy drives a nice car. He like wants $10,000 to do this ceremony. He is definitely shady from the get go. And nobody seems to pick up on that because everything else appears to be legit. Right. But he is definitely compromised from the beginning for sure. Yeah. And like I was being a little cheeky with him about it how sketchy he appears at first just because the movie does a good job of him having like that sociopathic ability kind of grifter thing yeah yeah uh, of like get people to trust in you no matter how shady you first appear sure and he does a good job of that like he definitely has like that sociopathic gift of like convincing people to be on his side or like that he's true and that's probably why he's basically the familiar of this demon yeah other thing as well there is a deleted scene that is not an alternate in but it's just a slightly longer ending that was cut where the next morning we see the Japanese man completely healed, perfectly fine, sitting at a bus stop. And there is like a family sitting across the road from him with like a young child and he's kind of waving at the young child and he like takes a box of Tic Tacs out of his pocket and is shaking them. And the kid starts to wander into the road until the mother like pays attention and goes and gets the kid, right? And then we see a car pull up and it's Il Guang, the shaman. He looks scared and kind of reluctant, but then the Japanese man gets in the car with him and they drive off. And then once they're like way down the road, you see the woman in white step out to the road and just kind of forlornly like look down the road. So my take is just she is kind of a village protective spirit. She seems to kind of know everybody in the village. She talks to people in the village. People in the village talk to her, but she can't necessarily leave that area and pursue them, you know? So the Japanese demon essentially is just going from like place to place, sowing discord and harm essentially. And again, we could look at that in a larger cultural context and maybe read that as this is the Japanese culture going Going from village to village in Korea, destroying traditional cultures and destroying families, and then moving on from there and just eating and consuming and devouring like this never satisfied ghost. You know, just the like lingering presence of that Japanese occupation is still damaging Korean culture and people. And, you know, we could definitely read it as that. And that, you know, because of like modern pride and modern skepticism and modern like distrust in general the people in the village like are even unable to help themselves and unable to push it back like their own like failures are perpetuating this harm essentially another thing of note too the woman in white you know one bit that you know immediately threw off Junggu was that she had personal items of villagers, but she collects upper body items. She had a jacket, she had a sweater, she had a hairpin. I didn't notice that. That's a good point. And the Japanese man only collects lower body items like socks and shoes and things like that. And apparently the whole idea behind that is the upper body items are things that you would use to like essentially protect charm, magic or whatever. And the lower items are things that you would use to like curse or hex people. 
So that's kind of my take is the Japanese demon essentially is this larger metaphor for the occupation and destruction of a lot of Korean culture and how it's just hungry and all-consuming. And there are some things that we can say are maybe like definitely controversial in their take. The fact that the Japanese demon essentially captures souls through the use of his camera. Camera, that's the one I took is that he's capturing their souls that way. That stereotype of... Japanese people being obsessed with photography, you know, like just that kind of stuff. Well, even the embrace of technology, like that too. Yeah. Because the idea of like a demon taking a soul seems like something that would be a very highly spiritual action to happen. Yeah. But the fact that he's doing it in this very modern way of using a camera, whether he's the one doing it or even his, his little minion, the shaman yeah. being the one to do it. Like that, that is a very, uh, I mean, it's not fully modern. It's been, that idea has been around since like, what the late 19th century early 20th sure. century but i'm just saying like let's insert this trope that in most other movies and situations would be kind of a weird stereotype a little bit icky but in this case like it's being done with a purpose to kind of look at this history and look at past oppression that's happened on yeah Korean culture specifically so like it's it's kind of thing that again like if you just had japanese guy with camera taking photos of everything in an american movie you would be like that's a rough stereotype type that hadn't aged well but they do it subtly here it's done with a purpose too yeah they do it subtly he never really like besides him being in demon form and like you see that brief moment when John Gu catches his notice for the first time of like him yeah. in the background with just a camera you never quite see him being the one to do it but then also he has this Korean shaman being the one who does probably most of the work for him and taking the pictures and there's probably something to be said there too but I didn't take this as like being blatant racism I think the is just commentary the way the movie handles this like i don't that, think they're that's being what I'm saying ultimately yeah. i don't think they're being malicious towards all of japan i just think it's social commentary on the history of korea's relationship maybe another thing too that i wanted to note was what this demon is doing kind of reminded me of a way of bob from twin peaks a little bit totally yeah capturing souls but basically feeding off the essence of corruption and despair through these murders yeah because totally. i mean he basically like possessed any who has those boils and stuff on them he has some kind of power over them like he's basically being the one controlling them at that point and when they go animalistic and kill like all their loved ones and everything i just take that as his feeding ritual basically uh now that we've gone through everything we've explained everything wanted to kind of justify my feelings after the movie of like this movie actually putting me into a darker mood i think in a way despite all the social critiques and everything we've talked about on a more personal human level I felt despaired or disappointed or frustrated emotionally after watching this because it's such an honest take of like what would happen with regular day human beings in situations like this. It's easy for me to sit here and watch John Goo and say like, all you have to do is just wait, just fucking wait for the rooster to crow three times. Yeah. But in that situation, like if I had a daughter, if I had been through all this stress, all these extreme measures, I have no idea what I would do in that situation. I probably would have very well told the woman in white to fuck off and done the same exact thing, maybe even way before John Goo did. And the reason why it was kind of frustrating is this is how humanity would act in this situation. That's how humanity's acting right now with everything yeah. that's going on. It's like, an so honest many people look. are just like, fuck it, whatever, you know? It's not just the downer ending or like evil has won it's that evil's process isn't even that clean or slick it's very messy it's very 
easy to expose but so much of it getting away with what it's doing the demon getting away with it is us letting it do it to us basically if that makes any sense and it was just frustrating to see how ignorant and like untrusting and lack of faith people are having there was even a little bit of like maybe the i was wishing the woman in white would just be way more straightforward but she probably can't be straightforward again going back to the trope of good has to be kind of mysterious or if she was straightforward it doesn't mean that it would be something that we could wrap our heads around even you know yeah and that's just frustrating because it's almost like a wake-up call look in the mirror to myself and people i know and how we would be in this situation like yeah we would probably fucking fail too and let this demon who is so obviously evil still kind of get away with it because i mean yeah. it was pretty obvious that the japanese guy wasn't necessarily the best person after the deputy found all the stuff and that was goes back to my other point of like i feel like if john goo had just seen that room not just the deputy if it was him as well he might have had a little more faith than the woman in white in that scene but i don't know yeah and me personally like as a skeptic you know this movie the first time i watched it i was not at all considering that anything supernatural was actually ever happening in my head this was all a commentary on like this is what happens when you have, you know, lots of superstition and traditional just kind of ignorance of like the world around you building superstition and paranoia. And I was thinking like maybe the Japanese man is guilty, but he's not this supernatural thing. Right. And then you get to like the whole scene in the middle with the ritual and you're like, something's going on here. Something weird's happening. <laughs> yeah. But is what I'm seeing what is actually going on? You know, like uh, the things that I'm seeing with my eyes, can I trust that to be the actual situation as is? But then you get to the end and then it's like, oh wait, no. Okay, yeah, there was more going on and like this movie definitely like got me in that regard where I didn't see a lot of the supernatural stuff just for what it was and kind of trust that that's maybe what was going Going on. I was definitely looking at it through a skeptic's lens the entire time, but this time rewatching it and knowing where things go ultimately, god damn, like the signs are there from the beginning. There's so much stuff happening under the surface if you just pay attention. So, yeah, definitely, I think this is an incredible piece of filmmaking ultimately. Amazing. Yeah, it's an amazing horror movie. I feel like this is one that even if you're not that into horror movies, you should certainly watch it. Um, even if this doesn't necessarily sound like your type of horror movie you should just give it a try because it is a solid piece of filmmaking top to bottom give yourself that two and a half hours three hours to sit down and really digest it and pay attention i wouldn't break this up into two sittings like take the two and a half hours when you have it and watch the whole thing top to bottom this movie demands and deserves your attention and time yeah totally cuckoo well that's a long one demon one baby another another downer ending Yay, (laughs) welcome to Horror Movies. (laughs) So that's it for this week's episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast. Check us out on social media at Facebook and Twitter at Watch If You Dare. You can get future episodes at whatever your favorite podcatcher is at this point. We're pretty much on all of them. And on that note, again, this is dating the recording a second time, but as of today, I got an email from Podchaser. They have trending lists as well as like an indie podcast spotlight. They email us and we are one of the featured podcasts on their indie spotlight this week. Hey. And they actually then tagged us on Twitter of these are our indie spotlights for this week. And it's us and four other shows, which I will shout out right now. The Pod Report, 
Reply All, TCM, Turner Classic Movies, The Koenig Cultures Network, so I guess it's actually networks as well, and Gimlet Media. Wait, hold on. How are we in the same ballpark as any of those other ones? Turner I know, Classic right? Movies, Gimlet, like, how are we? Yeah. What? Yeah, that's what blew what? me away. Sure. I mean, I'll take it. Yeah. yeah. It's the Pod Chaser Rundown featuring uh, the Pod Report, Watch If You Dare, Reply All, TCM, Koenig Cultures, Gimlet Media, and more. So. Sure. I know. Right. It's kind of fucking bonkers that Pod Chaser uh, featured us amongst way more qualified I things. I mean, yeah. We're thankful for the support. Definitely continue to rate and review because that's, you know, how we get more exposure. But thank y'all for the support so far. I mean, like, that's pretty big, I guess. Like, I don't think we We've been featured on any like here's something you should pay attention to kind of list so that feels nice if somebody's listening so thank y'all definitely thank you once again pod chaser and i'm sorry i went into this announcement unprepared and i apologize to other shows and media but thank you pod chaser that is incredibly humbling um very nice surprise to have this morning in my email so yeah and uh, shout out to your little brother as well for yeah. our bumps at the beginning and end of each show find his music at party gator at Bandcamp. please support him even though things are kind of starting to relax just because things are starting likes didn't mean that we're out of the woods yet yeah yeah and he need he, he still needs your support throw him a few bucks get some good music yep yep so that is it for this week derek you got any last thoughts sally all you have to do is wait for the rooster to crow three times that's it that's all you got to do <laughs> oh wait that's not a rooster. that's a fucking wolf <laughs>